Welcome. We are thrilled to have you here. I think uh, you will find that today's session is both fascinating from a what we are learning, fascinating from a here's a bunch that we don't know that we think we all would stand to uh, benefit from solving. And we've got some people doing amazing work uh, on the panel today. All right, well, high expectations for today, but I don't think you will be disappointed. So let me tell you a little bit, um, the thing about workshops is if we just sit here for three hours and talk at you, you'll be asleep in about mm, 40 minutes, especially right after lunch. So um, we do want to keep this um, as interactive as possible. That means we do have things we want to share. I think you came to hear from some of the folks who are doing um, work in this field. But we will also be asking questions. You are actually going to participate in doing an assessment of your own organization as part of this. Um, and so we hope that you're going to find that you do walk away not only having learned something, but that you've really gotten some time to think yourselves about um, the organization you're doing. And what you, you take back from this conference um, tomorrow uh, makes a difference. Um, so. The four of us, so my name is Susan Hunt-Stevens, I'm the founder and CEO of WeSpire, uh, which is a technology company based in Boston that does employee engagement programs. And I'm joined by Stephanie Bertels, who is the director of the Embedded Sustainability Working Group, uh, Network for Business Sustainability. I had the pleasure of hearing uh, Stephanie speak at the Maine uh, Sustainable Brands Conference and feel like she is doing literally globally some of the best work of um, around a maturity model for embedding sustainability and, and has some, um, some just great insights uh, for you all. And then uh, Zainab Tan is the author of The Good Job Strategy and is also a professor here at MIT, correct? Um, and um, what is, what's exciting to me about this is that I think there, my observation is in the field of sustainability, there's been a disconnect to some extent between what we're doing in the environment and how we're treating our people. And one of the things that I think Zainab is really going to bring into the whole sustainability conversation is how this is part, good jobs is part of sustainability um, and being, building a sustainable organization. Um, and Jason Jay is the director of the Sustainability Initiative at MIT Sloan. He's doing great work to um, bring the field together and also make sure that the research that is getting done is getting done um, and making sure that MIT is connecting on, on all fronts, academic, student, et, et cetera. And so I'm excited to have him here. Um, so here's our agenda for today. So we're doing our welcome and intros. Um, I'm going to then start with giving you uh, lessons from the front. We work with 30 large organizations who are engaging their employees in sustainability and other triple bottom line programs. Um, so we see it all, the good, the bad, the ugly, uh, what's working, what's not working, and frankly, what's not getting done. And so we'll have kind of a frank conversation about that. Um, then Stephanie is, is going to take the lead and talk about her maturity model, but then this is also going to be a time where you're going to be spending, um, you know, to do your own, own work for, for really thinking about your organization through this framework. We'll then take a 15-minute break and then come back to talk about the connection between good jobs and uh, the good job strategy and sustainability. And then we'll, we'll uh, end with giving you time to kind of reflect and say, based on what I've learned today, what's, what's, what am I going to do when I leave this conference that makes a difference in my organization? Um, so to start my, my uh, part off, this is what I often run into when we walk into a large global organization. We have people who are doing amazing work in sustainability. They may be zero waste. They may have started thinking regenerative design. They may have done this. 
But they say, I can no longer look my boss in the eye and tell him we measure the impact of employee engagement by the number of ham sandwiches given out at a lunch and bar. And, and this is a large financial services firm that measures everything. But I think it, measuring the impact of engagement and connecting the dots between engaging employees and positive business outcomes has been extremely, extremely challenging for most organizations. Um, what we launched about four years ago was a way is to bring a technology solution that tried to close the gap between the 80% of people who say they want to do something to contribute positively and the 20% who actually do. And to use the power of game mechanics, social mechanics, and great content to improve people's ability to take action, improve their motivation to take action, and then to put triggers in the right place in the right time to get them to do something once, get them to do it for a period of time, or get them to do it as a lifelong habit change. Um, four years ago, I never would have guessed this would have been valuable to organizations. Um, but about three years ago, companies started calling and asking if they could use the platform to run their employee engagement initiatives focused on sustainability. And my first question was why? And there were really four problems that we were starting, uh, that we were helping them solve. The first was, um, I don't remember exactly who mentioned, but they have um, employees in 21 different countries. And so one of the things was just the scale that companies operate on globally. It's really challenging to get everybody on the same page as it relates to your sustainability initiatives and align people with actions that they can take that not only improve their ability, but then also connect to what goals the company is trying to achieve and connecting the dots between those two. Second is accessibility. Many, many of our customers have employees who don't have computers at work, um, but they do have smartphones. And for the first time in many ways ever, you can engage large quantities of employees at work in programs through these devices. And so whether it's retail or hospitality or other, we started being able to bring these programs to people on their phones that also <laughs> fits in some ways the time they have available to it. So they can participate in the program when they're on their break. They can participate in their, commute, in their commuting time. The companies are giving people time to participate in these programs, um, you know, making it accessible. So accessibility, started. but metrics was a big part. How many people are participating? What are they doing? What is the impact of that? You know, being able to measure the impact. Then the last thing was, has been really exciting, and this links a, a, a decent amount into what you're gonna hear from Zainab, which is, you know, when we started, people were just generally wanting their employees to do something, anything, because employees were raising their hands saying, what should I do, what should I do? And so they wanted to give them ideas. But more and more, as our companies are maturing, what we're seeing is they are starting to also recognize that if you can create a program that is relevant to an employee's role or location, um, you can have an even more transformational impact in many ways. And so it's great to have people participate in these broad, general um, programs that are maybe even personal or community-based. But when, you know, if you're, a, if you're a housekeeper and you have a program that's helping you understand what you can do in your day job to uh, be more sustainable, um, and, you know, you feel empowered, therefore, to take some of those steps. And so we've been able to see a lot around targeting those um, for folks. It's been kind of exciting. Um, so here's a, just a, a sample of some of our clients. We have about 30. They represent um, some of the biggest companies in the world and some real sustainability leaders like Unilever, 
Um, Dom Tar in the paper uh, industry, NBC Universal, Sony, uh, MGM Resorts, um, and we work now with three utility companies with their employees. So we've really seen across industry to also see what, what is similar and, and different. Um, and so what we have been able to see across our clients is that engagement and engaging your employees is delivering value in five key areas. Um, and so I'm going to share five examples of our clients and value that they have measured from these programs. And then I'm going to tell you what's still wrong and what's not working. Um, so um, let me jump into first of um, real measurable savings. So if I were to create a curve, in fact, I think an MIT article um, created the sustainability curve of sort of low sustainability to high sustainability of maturity, the first thing that most of my clients would say is they're pursuing sustainability engagement initiatives as an efficiency. Um, it's, it's really to save, to reduce impact and put the, the measurable, quantifiable savings associated with that. And they make the business case for doing this based on how much energy, waste, water, or fuel they save. And the good news is that um, engaging your employees can really help move the needle on this. And in fact, there's some great data that shows um, in, when you're thinking about energy use for a building, even if you optimize on the design and you optimize on the engineering, 80% of the energy that's left over is only tackled by going after behavior change programs. And so it really does work. And um, our clients have seen huge energy savings, huge water savings, huge waste savings, and they can do an ROI on our programs, and that's great. Um, but in, I, I would tell you, in my mind, that's the tip of the iceberg. It's a nice way for them to fill out that little report that the CFO asks for of what's the return on investment for a program. Um, don't get me wrong, it's nice that we can pay for ourselves, but I don't think this is really the power of doing this, and especially if you do it well. So something we saw that was really that we've seen at EMC is, is that they have really leveraged the platform to drive innovation and particularly to capture innovation ideas around sustainability challenges um, from people who would normally not have access to the typical innovation processes. They might be frontline workers, they might be international in small offices. And as an example, um, one of the employees at the EMC Egypt office, after participating in the program, you know, raised his hand and said, you know, I don't see an action on here that I think every, uh, that, that every office should be taking. So the CSO said, what is that? And he explained to her that their storage strategy around data retention was costing the Egypt office around 5,000 pounds. When she realized what that impact of that was globally, it was a half a million dollars. And so one frontline person participating in a program that had nothing to do with this came up with an idea that then when spread more broadly, you know, had them change an idea or way of doing things, change a practice and a procedure that helped um, drive you know, very strong return. That's just a little tiny example. They now are running a big innovation challenge through it um, around how they can design basically their certain of their um, uh, data storage to basically reduce the quantity of energy used when saving data. And they're opening it up to every employee to try and submit groups and ideas and things like that. So you know, innovation and unlocking innovation on a global platform is another value. Um, recently, we've seen this in California. We have a lot of clients in Nevada and California, and connecting um, your employees to solving a broad community problem can be really powerful for your company. So this, um, all the companies in California got a letter 
saying they needed to reduce their water usage by 10% and they needed to get their employees engaged in saving 10% at home. So we put together a program called Drought Busters that got rolled out to all these companies and in the last five months it saved about 7 million gallons of water. But what it's also enabled the companies to do is to go back to the Public Water Utility Commissions and say, here's what we're doing. Here's what our employees are doing. Here's the quantified benefit of that. Here's how we're tackling the problem. And then last, and I love this. This is really exciting. This is really tip of the iceberg stuff. Uh, I mean, getting in deep on, on this connection. So one of our clients, um, actually I've got a link to the actual report. Uh, she commissioned the Harvard Business School to see to measure the link between employee engagement and customer loyalty. So does engaging our employees in sustainability, their program's called Go Green, drive better customer loyalty? And the answer was yes. Love the fact she's thinking this way. This, this is like when you start really putting the business case um, around, around this. And then last, eBay has really connected this to being able to attract and retain the right workforce. And they're putting a lot around the, um, you know, and if you think about eBay in the middle of a lot of startups, they're in a war for talent. Um, they are finding that in having programs that engage people in social innovation helps them hire the next generation of workers over other companies. And they're making that a talent um, and attracting a retention argument. So it's all good. It's great that clients are measuring it. Fabulous. But it's not good enough in, in my mind. Um, and here's the reason why. If you really look at the cost of disengaged employees, recognizing disengagement comes from a whole host of things. You know, uh, and Zainab's going to talk a lot about some of the things that, you know, the tip workers are facing in not good jobs. So she'll talk about it from a good job standpoint, yeah. which is much more inspiring. But, but really companies, and this is just a US number, this is not a global number, companies are leaving 450 to $550 billion um, or in, in lost productivity due to disengaged employees. And just for reference in the sustainable world, that's 3x what they're spending on their utilities across all utilities. So when you really think about the cost of a disengaged employee, it's big, it's really big. And yet what's fascinating and what's starting to emerge in the research, but it is just not getting proven systematically enough yet, is that what I'm calling triple bottom line programs. So programs in sustainability, corporate social responsibility, diversity and inclusion, um, you know, even safety and security in, in some places can actually be a solution to the broader engagement problem. And so this is Intel. And one of the things that, and, and Linda uh, Kwan is gonna be speaking on Friday to talk about the Intel story, and they're they're really pioneering some of the metrics around this. And that is they were able to show that as they started to focus on reducing greenhouse gas emissions, that their employees, and they statistically did the correlation to show that it was, that it was related, um, would recommend Intel as, as a better place to work, went up by almost 10 percentage points, tied into tackling these things. And this is the kind of data that I wish every single one of my customers was trying to capture and that every company was sharing and starting to look at the correlation between these things. Because I think what we have to challenge ourselves as an industry um, is to position sustainability engagement not as a departmental initiative, not as something to help you achieve your sustainability goals, alone, but as an enterprise-wide initiative that is about driving positive business outcomes in terms of overall result, results, revenues, profits, 
employee um, attraction retention brand, et cetera. And that as a result, the HR group has got to get more connected to the sustainability engagement metrics. And we did a survey this year uh, nationwide only of all of employees in large companies asking them about the state of sustainability employee engagement. Only 9% said that HR was involved at all in the sustainability strategy. Only 9%. Now that's up from 5% three years ago. But still, only 9% of employees say that HR is involved in any way, shape, or form. So bringing these two groups together is really powerful. I think third, and, and you're going to start to hear from some people who are doing this. So the good news is I'm saying these are the challenges and there are solutions coming. But we do need to, as an industry, move beyond the anecdotes and the individual case studies. It is awesome that Intel is doing that, and that's great. But if only one company is doing it, we don't have a way of being able to compare and benchmark and look for best practices and start to do this. And that's why some of the work that Stephanie is doing is just so exciting. She's doing it with large quantities of companies. Um, and what that also does is if you move beyond the anecdotes and individuals, you can have shared benchmarks and best practices. Um, and you can start to look at what really, if I'm a company and I'm doing really well in this area, but not really well in this area, what can I do to improve? What are companies that are best practice companies doing? And then finally, um, you know, it's great, again, that Intel is looking at how their employee opinion scores increased. And there's a lot of HR research that shows when your employee opinion score increases, here's what's <coughs> happened to productivity, but who's connecting the, you know, how are people really connecting to dot, the dots that said, by investing X in sustainability and responsibility strategies, that drove up my employee opinion survey results by 10 points, which led to this much profit. And I feel, still think, Again, we're in the land of anecdotes and case studies on, on that and not having um, a shared system, systematic record on that. And so I think as we go through today, this is one of the think, challenges for all of us is how do we start to see what's emerging in this field? Because we really sort of feel like it's the internet industry back in 1995. You know, there, there's, it's emerging, it's exciting, it is, it is going to be good, but there's still a lot of work to do. Um, so with that, I will hand it over to Stephanie to talk about some of the work that is starting to get done that's pretty exciting. Um, so Susan mentioned, um, so I'm a, I'm a professor at uh, a business school in Canada, uh, Simon Fraser University, and uh, I've been doing work in this area now for about um, five or six years, and so that where we've come to is to try and develop uh, that portal, that place, uh, the process to rigorously bring together uh, the practitioners in, in companies to understand what they're doing and to be able to create uh, a system to try and benchmark uh, what organizations are doing and to be able to longitudinally and cross-sectionally, so in time and across companies and across industries, really compare what organizations are doing in order to be able to give insights back to the broader community about what's working, what's not working, the sequencing of it, trying to understand um, how this journey unfolds. So um, what was the starting point for this? Uh, so in 2010, uh, I spent a year doing a systematic review on embedding sustainability. And what we did, um, this was for the Network for Business Sustainability, which is a not-for-profit organization that's housed out of um, uh, Ivy, the uh, Western School of Business, and um, what they have a leadership council of, uh, of forward-thinking companies that each year 
come up with their most pressing issues um, around business sustainability. And one of the early issues that came forward was how do you embed sustainability into a company so that it can endure a change in leadership? And um, what, um, uh, what we do then is we try and locate the best available knowledge on that topic. So I had a team of PhD students that looked at almost uh, 14,000 academic articles, books, practitioner reports to try and understand what do we know about embedding sustainability. But more broadly as well, what do we know about analogous cultural interventions? So what have we learned from trying to build cultures of health and safety? What have we learned from trying to build cultures of ethics? What have we learned about trying to build cultures of innovation, for instance? Um, and so then we identified the best sources and I had a practitioner guidance committee. So I had uh, several uh, heads of sustainability from some of Canada's largest companies who said to me, look, um, we don't want a laundry list. We want you to come back with something that helps us to think about this and organize it. And so for each of these um, uh, for each of the documents, we went through them, we looked at them line by line, and we asked ourselves, what are they doing? Um, what are they trying to accomplish? How are they going about it? And where we could, we wanted to understand with what degree of success. And so that was where we ended up um, developing this framework. And, um, and so the idea is that um, on the vertical axis, what we look at is the idea that Organizations both engage in formal activities, so developing um, codes, policies, procedures, but they also engage in informal activities that are really more about the walking the walk, talking the talk um, kind of actions. It's about the social sanctions and social rewards that you create within the culture of your organization. Um, the uh, horizontal access of the framework really is about balancing, so um, uh, You've taken a strategy course. Uh, we talk about the idea of exploration and exploitation. In the sustainability realm, we don't like to use the word exploitation. Um, so I, I talked instead about this idea of fulfillment and innovation, or um, lately I've been using the language of delivering and advancing. And so the idea is that on the um, fulfillment side, this is delivering on the commitments that you have. So that 23-year-old truck driver um, if you've made a commitment to um, uh, the protecting the territorial hunting grounds uh, with the First Nations um, uh, group, then you need to make sure that every single time that that 23-year-old truck driver is going to close that gate, right? So it's that 99.9% .9 of the time kind of activities that the thing, the must-dos, and so often that involves. Um, making sure people are doing things the same and the way that they're supposed to. On the other side of it, though, is you, if you're that same oil company, you want to make a major gain in your steam oil ratios. You really want to reduce the greenhouse gases that you are uh, using to get that oil out of the ground in the first place. Or possibly, you want to become an integrated energy company and you want to move out of oil entirely. That is doing things very differently. And so creating a culture in which you can both have people doing things the way they're supposed to be doing them all the time and doing new and different things in order to make your sustainability journey progress can be challenging. And what that means is actually doing a lot of things simultaneously. So embedding sustainability into your organization and into how you do business 
um, is really about balancing a set of a whole bunch of different things that you need to be doing simultaneously. So um, I put this initial report out. It's freely available, and you can pick up the original report on the NBS website. Um, and then a curious thing happened. Um, I, within a month, started to get uh, heads of sustainability from large corporations emailing me and saying, so here's our wheel. Because I had said the first thing that you want to do is you want to kind of take a look, take an inventory, reflect on which things are we doing, which things are we not doing. And so um, James Gray Donald, who's the head of sustainability at the time for, um, uh, for Sears and now is the head of sustainability for Bentall Kennedy, which is a large real estate holding company in Canada, um, he said to me, look, I had a new CEO, a new CFO, and a new COO all in one week. And... <laughs> fun times. And he said, what this let me do was in one slide, put my arms around the myriad of different things that we need to be doing within the organization, but more fundamentally point to the fact that the majority of them didn't reside in my team. And that while I would like to have a larger team, um, making my team bigger by one person or two people was not going to result in embedding sustainability across the organization. So he and I started to have a conversation. So he said, so here's my wheel. What next? Now what? And I said, well, that's a great question. But you know, as a researcher, as a scientist, I can't say with certainty to you what is next. I have my thoughts about it. And he said, great. What are your thoughts? And I said, oh, hang on. I'm not a consultant, right? You know, I, I'm a researcher. And, and he said, well, what if, we, what if we made this into a research program? So the idea was, could we start to understand how these practices shift over time and to start thinking about which practices were important in what order? So that's where we assembled um, a set of uh, large Canadian um, firms and we brought them together into an embedding sustainability working group in a three-year rigorous study to understand what they were doing, understand the impact that was having on their culture and their climate, and to develop practical tools so that we could actually take this more broadly. So the goal was develop an assessment tool. So really take that initial framework that we had developed, which I knew had holes in it. I knew that there were practices that had not been identified um, because a lot of the academic work that goes into studying sustainability is based on publicly available data. So there's thousands, and Chris will tell you, thousands and thousands of studies on the relationship between corporate social responsibility and financial performance simply because people can find data sets. But there's not a lot of systematic work on this, on how you actually embed sustainability. And so the first thing that we had to do was we had to understand, do we have the right set of practices? Is it comprehensive enough? Um, do we have the right things in place? And also, what does it look like in terms of a spectrum? So we had to ask ourselves, what is, does a low on organizational storytelling for sustainability look like as compared to a high on organizational storytelling for sustainability? What does a low on integrating risk look like as compared to a high on integrating risk? And so we needed to, using good academic language, dimensionalize all of our practices. Um, and so this itself was uh, a two-year process of working with the companies but also going more broadly for each practice and looking broadly out into the world on uh, who is doing cutting-edge work in this area. We spoke with sustainability practitioners, we spoke with consultants, so for example on the um, 
uh, storytelling uh, spectrum, we talk to uh, movie producers. We talk to people who do research on memorable messaging. We talk to brand consultants. We spoke with um, the people who produce trailers for movies to really understand what good storytelling looks like and what storytelling that was well embedded as a cultural phenomena in an organization would look like. So um, the other thing that we did then was we started to assess our organizations and figure out where they are. So the way to read these is that it's like a, uh, so it moves outwards um, in terms of your level of embeddedness, but also we use the rainbow color spectrum. So orange, yellow, green, blue, and eventually purple, um, moving out towards greater degrees of embeddedness. And so what we found was that at least, so this is the, the orange and the yellow side is, is the lowest um, score from all of our working group members. So on every practice, we had someone in those companies, in one or more companies, that had really not even started on this. But fortuitously, we found that for every practice, we had one or more companies that had actually started to make quite good progress on this practice. So it created a wonderful matchmaker, matchmaker situation where we brought these companies together and we said, um, here you go, uh, company A, let's match you up with company B. And the topic today is integrating um, sustainability strategy, discuss, right? So it created this wonderful opportunity. The other thing that we did is um, we were fortunate uh, in the NBS had started to expand um, internationally. And so we joined up with the South African affiliate of NBS. And so we started to bring on a whole other set of South African firms to do validation work. This was really interesting because um, the Canadian firms in a lot of ways had made a lot of progress on the environmental side, but many of them were just starting to think about what um, adhering to social foundations was really going to look like. On the South African side, um, because of the structure of uh, requirements for reporting and integrated reporting and a whole bunch of other things um, in the South African context, there were a number of companies like uh, Nedbank, for instance, that had um, launched their fair share initiative and, and were really um, already thinking quite deeply about what it was going to look like to try and change the communities in which they operate fundamentally as a part of their core business strategy. Um, and so, and on the supply chain side, a company like Woolworths, um, which is a, a large retailer in, um, uh, like a grocery chain in, in, in South Africa that is now managing to so, uh, source over 96% of its uh, fresh fruits and vegetables from within South Africa. So really thinking about changing supply chains. So the next piece of it was to really understand um, the sequencing of the practices. So this is what an academic's brain looks like in the middle of the night. Um, this is what we do. Um, and so this was our cognitive, or a, you know, a snapshot of our cognitive mapping exercise of saying, so where do these organizations get stuck? If you're trying to get to uh, three out of, out of five on um, compensation, how high do you need to get to on metrics? Because we heard from a bunch of organizations that they tried to initiate compensation too early, and then because they didn't have metrics that the senior management team really believed in, they had to backpedal and they had to use their life cycle analysis tool and develop strong, really robust metrics about um, what that was going to look like. And so what we started to do was capture these 
false starts, missteps, um, the sequencing of these practices over time. And that allowed us to reorganize our wheel into a set of pathways where we saw these iterative loops of practices that, um, that uh, sort of seem to, that you need to kind of ripple through getting a one, 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 one on all those practices in order to go through and get a two, 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 two on the next ones. And so we were seeing that there was this, this um, iteration happening. And so, for instance, um, on the formal advancing practices, if you look at the plan pathway, what we see is that organizations need to um, get into this position of envisioning the future. And based on that future, or the future that they see, that's what guides them into their prioritization or what some call a materiality process. Um, and that prioritization materiality process is what um, triggers them to set a set of sustainability goals. So sustainability goals get integrated to their strategy and as they uh, reach different levels of integration of their strategy, then that, that causes the organization to actually think about and envision the future in a different way. And so we were seeing these, these loops going around. Um, we had an improvement pathway around asking employees um, for their feedback and soliciting their input, but also a listening practice around to what degree does your organization actually listen to the feedback that it brings in. Um, and a whole suite of things around reviewing root causes and updating. Um, there is an innovation pathway around making use of life cycles, um, exploring and piloting um, internal knowledge and improving your products and services and developing new products and services. And then this outward connecting pathway around um, scanning, benchmarking, standards, seeking feedback, using outside expertise. Um, on the formal side, on delivering on commitments, uh, this is where you see some of what we typically think of as the core sustainability activities, like the inventorying and measuring, the information systems and analytics, the reporting and the verification systems. But then you have this integration pathway where you're starting to integrate all of that into policies, procedures, risk, business planning. And then the two lower ones um, really are focused around uh, the HR kind of practices who you promote, how you compensate them, um, uh, personal goal setting, allocating responsibility to senior leaders, um, creating sustainability roles within the organization, and then also this idea of training, onboarding, and recruiting. And so on the informal delivering side, we see things like um, how you tackle issues. So if your organization gets involved in um, tackling a large issue. So one of our member companies, Tech Resources, which is Canada's largest integrated resource company, um, and I think about the 10th largest mining company in the world, um, has over the last half decade gotten extremely involved in a Zinc for Health initiative. So they own one of the world's largest zinc mines, um, and they've partnered with UNICEF um, with the result now of investing uh, millions of dollars in creating supplements for um, uh, children who would have died otherwise or um, become blind or, or had um, kidney problems from a zinc deficiency. And so they had a strategic partnership with BASF and they were able to actually um, affect 35 million uh, people around the world with this initiative and improve the, the um, outcomes for these. And so just imagine as an employee of tech who for many years at Thanksgiving would be vilified for working for a bad mining company and working in the zinc sector which is considered to be one of the um, uh, most toxic 
and now you're able to talk about the good that the organization has been able to do in the world. So tackling issues has turned out to be um, a really important practice. Um, uh, and this idea of uh, leveraging interest, um, linking, linking your behavior at work to your behavior at home, resolving inconsistencies, so to what extent do you really look and try and understand um, uh, the inconsistencies between what you're saying that you're doing and what the lived experience for employees is like on the ground. Um, and we'll go into some of these in more detail as we evaluate, but employee well-being, recognition, following up, informing, modeling, committing, um, self-regulating, these are all um, important pieces of this, uh, this walking the walk, talking the talk kind of set of practices. Um, and then, you know, the brand, your mission, vision, values, and the extent to which you share stories and the kinds of stories, stories that you tell. And so, what become the hero stories in your organization? Uh, what become the anchor choices that people look to? And so then the informal practices are really around um, framing and asking leaders. So there's a whole set around engaging leaders. Uh, there's a whole set around building readiness, so triggering and challenging and explaining and looking beyond. And so the idea then was we tried to develop a maturity model. So um, this is the results for one company. And so what we're able to say to them is that these are the practices right now that are holding you back. And so you need to work this way. And so these are the practices, first the orange ones and then the yellow ones. And so, you know, it's not, it's not exact. It's not that if you don't get this, you can't move forward at all. But these are the trends that we're seeing among, among organizations. And as a result of this, it gives um, people a way to focus their efforts and to really think about what are the things that uh, maybe you've been leaving aside because it's hard work to do. But the message is, in fact, you really are not going to get a lot further if you continue to leave this piece behind. So our current work is around testing this. So are, we, are our predictions right about what needs to be done? Um, so this requires, as Susan was saying, pre-measurements, post-measurements, um, really understanding properly whether or not the efforts that we um, are putting into companies are actually resulting in the efficacy and the changes that we, that we wanted to see. Um, the other thing that we've been doing is capturing all of this in a set of guidebooks. So we've been developing guidebooks around embedding sustainability through storytelling for sustainability. So really trying to capture the early work in the companies that we've been working with on developing this, um, that ability for storytelling by leveraging interests and in cultivating champions, by looking into the, embedding it into the employee life cycle. So this was a guidebook that we've started writing for sustainability to act as a boundary object between sustainability practitioners in an organization and the HR practitioners in that organization. And um, another one that we're very excited to be starting right now is on context-based strategy making. And so that's um, understanding what it would really look like for organizations to set context-based um, uh, sustainability strategies. And so, since this really is on engagement, we'll just think, I'll just let you know some of the things that we've been seeing about embedding sustainability into the employee <coughs> life cycle. So, if you think of a life cycle as attracting, recruiting, and, and hiring, um, this anchoring in an organization's sustainability values in terms of who you attract, who you recruit, and ultimately who you hire. Um, 
at the onboarding level, we've been looking at how you socialize employees for sustainability on their way in, and then how you develop them. And a core tenet of, um, as I think you will agree, is this notion of systems thinking, is that at a very early level, you need to make really, really um, focused um, investments into your emerging leaders in your organizations to help them learn how to first see systems and then ultimately to think systemically. Um, and then how you manage employees in, in the goal setting, in the compensation and promotion, how you foster employee well-being in terms of um, diversity, in, income inequality, employee benefits. And then uh, this other piece of it which is really interesting is how you actually continue to engage with retirees. So you see employees as part of a community, um, not just as employees. And so some organizations have been doing some extremely interesting work in terms of um, maintaining uh, relationships with their retired employees uh, decades after they've retired as, um, as a, a set of volunteers, but also bringing them back um, on uh, short-term training contracts and all sorts of um, very interesting arrangements. So this is the part where I would like you to think about your own company or some of the companies that you work with for the consultants in the room. And so, um, for instance, um, to what extent do you make explicit statements about sustainability and communicating your organization's mission, vision, values, or core purpose? So what have you seen, the organizations that you work in? Um, to what extent are they starting to make explicit statements about sustainability and their mission, vision, and values? Stephanie, you want me to talk, write it Yeah, down. yeah, no, so I'm, I'm asking. So. In yeah. our case, it's very simple. We make fertilizers. Yes. So it's all about, our mission is about feeding the world. Yes. Food security, so. Yeah. yeah. And so this is, so when we talk about our spectrum along this, we, um, uh, we talk about a spectrum from which uh, it's there implicitly, and so that um, uh, people would say, well, our employees know what that means but maybe an outsider can't see it. Is that where you're at? Or are you at the point where an outsider can read your mission, vision, and values and see that this is core to your organization? I think that outsiders do associate, I mean, depending on their level of awareness, yeah. associate our core uh, operation with you know, creating the right ingredients for, for farmers around the world. But it's true that there is more uh, awareness uh, about this mission internally than it is externally. Yeah. And so um, what we're seeing is a whole spectrum. And so at the upper end of the spectrum, when you move into highly embedded organizations, what we're seeing are organizations that actually their mission, vision, values become about creating a transformation, not only within their own organization, but more broadly within their industry and within society. And they're explicit about this. And so we see a, a, you know, a huge shift um, as we move along in terms of um, what that commitment might look like. Um, the next one is about brand. To what extent do you employ a brand to distinguish or highlight your sustainability programs and to differentiate and communicate your sustainability vision to employees and others? So to what extent do you either have your an, an internal sustainability brand, um, or are you moving on to sustainability being a core element of the brand that defines you? And this is important because um, 
While we think about our brand as largely being targeted at customers, the brand of the organization also has a huge, huge impact on its employees. And in fact, it has an impact on who you recruit as your future employees in the first place. And so thinking about what your brand says about your organization, both to current and, pros and prospective employees, is an important part of thinking about um, engagement. Um, we have a practice about rec attracting, recruiting, and hiring for sustainability values. So to what extent do you include sustainability as an element of the recruitment process by promoting your organization's sustainability commitments and or by assessing a candidate's sustainability values or competencies, such as interdisciplinary thinking or understanding of life cycles and systems? And also, to what extent are your HR team be able to screen candidates for fit on sustainability? So you actually have to, you're, I see a, a, a no. Tell me more about the no. Yeah, so we're seeing some very interesting, and I'll, I'll come in just a second, we're seeing some very interesting things in, in some of the companies around how they're making early investments um, into training of the HR teams themselves in order to really be able to think about, um, uh, to know what kinds of questions even to ask in order to assess fit, to know what kinds of things to look for on resumes in order to be able to narrow down and bring the right people into the room in the first place. Um, Nora. Yeah, and so currently trying to develop. In fact, we're going to be working with the MIT uh, oh. Sustainable Systems Lab uh, to work with us uh, on developing an employer uh, brand value, yep. and we're looking at this, but not so much from the perspective of hiring uh, talent. I mean, yes, it's important. Of course, we would like to hire talent that would help us with our uh, sustainability journey. But how do we uh, attract the best talent, and how, how do we uh, ensure talent retention with, uh, within the organization? Yeah, and so we've seen everything from, um, well, we've started to include sustainability in the boilerplate statements of all of the job descriptions that we put out there, right? So if you, you know, and that's, that's a start. Um, and then it starts to move into, well, we're starting to, uh, screen for this as part of what we what we think constitutes fit for an employee. So I, I've just returned from South Africa and I was meeting down there with um, one of their largest insurance companies and their HR team was saying that they've really changed now how they um, how they hire and so you know you have to get you have to meet a set of regular normal minimum thresholds and she said but they're they're um, the first question now in their employee hiring is, um, tell us something about 
uh, tell us about how you volunteer in your community. And people either look down at the floor because they don't know how to answer the question, or they perk up immediately and say, no one's ever asked me about that before. And then they start telling these passionate stories about the things that they do and how they spend their time. And what they've been able to show is those employees work hard and stay because they, they know how to commit to things, right? And so they've started to think about assessing this as part of fit in this organization um, because when you are uh, branding yourself as the insurance company that cares, you need to have employees who know how to care, who know to how to, on the front lines, interact in a way that they can show empathy, that they can, um, that they can make hard decisions and, and sometimes go against company policies in order to do what's right for the customer. Um, so, it's, uh, so this understanding of what is going to constitute fit in the future at that organization has had to really shift. And so they then had to invest in understanding and, and that resulted even in some turnover within their HR group because some of the HR, current HR people that they had just weren't comfortable with that or, or didn't, you know, didn't feel that it was suited to, to their skill set. I'd love to hear from somebody who thinks um, their HR team is doing a good job in telling the sustainability story as part of attracting talent. So do you have, does anybody have examples of something people are doing well? Yeah. It, it's not me personally, but there's a company that I know well. They, it's part of the job descriptions. Like even if your job is to, to design the product, it'll say, you know, our value is. So you, if you do a search for for job openings, mm -hmm. you put in sustainability as a keyword, and you expect to get two or three hits, and you get two or three hundred hits because everyone has it. And then you talk to people and. When they're bringing someone in, they, they tell them, you know, we're committed to labor and environmental sustainability and so on. But yeah. um, well, it's not exactly the same, but I was just thinking about when we were noticing that um, students that were sustainability students are more likely to give back mm -hmm. to some community. So one of the things, and this may not be related at all, but I'm thinking is that our admissions department at Sloan is starting to engage with us more about what we're doing on sustainability, like in terms of sustainability. And talking to students and screening students more to see if they're interested in sustainability. And one of the things that we've noticed is that our sustainability students tend to give back more to- They're in student government. Yeah, government yeah. or volunteering for, mm -hmm. you know, it's not exactly the same, but it is a screening process and we are seeing We have a couple clients now where somebody from the sustainability team or even a general manager who is um, very active in sustainability work is going to every new hire orientation um, and is actually getting involved now in the recruiting, on on-campus recruiting and things like that because what they have recognized is that um, they're, they're a technology company where it's very competitive for, for hiring is that there are so many students now who want to work in the sustainability department and there's not enough job, sustainability jobs for all these students who want to have sustainability jobs. But if you can position the company and explain that sustainability is embedded in every job in mm -hmm. some way, shape, or form, 
now a marketer is interested in the marketing jobs at your company, um, you know, and can bring that in and see, sees that as very much, and they're getting people to join the company at much greater rates. They're getting better talent pool and things like that. And so it's been interesting to, we have um, monthly best practice sharing sessions with our uh, customers. And so one customer shared that, and now we have others starting to do that too and are getting amazing feedback about just the value of that process and attracting talent. And then the other thing that we started to do is run onboarding programs that are really geared towards how do you onboard employees into a culture of sustainability? Mm -hmm. You know, um, and being able to see that those programs are actually very, very helpful at, at acclimating um, new employees, not only into a culture of sustainability, but also in many ways meeting their, their desire and needs to find purpose at work. Mm -hmm. um, back to, to something Chris had said, um, which is that even, even if my job you know, is to, to be at the waitress or at the counter or to, to be a store clerk. If I feel like I'm at a company where I can live out positive values, I'm going to be a better waitress. I'm going to mm -hmm. be a better retail clerk. And so some of the companies that we're seeing that are doing um, quite advanced work in this area, for instance, have um, engaged in formal training around integrated thinking and systems thinking for their HR candidates, or for their HR team, in order that they would actually be equipped in um, knowing the kinds of assessments. So they're, they're fundamentally changing how they, entire, how they hire employees. So many companies are moving away from interviews entirely, and instead what they're doing is they're creating experiential situations, and they are just um, bringing prospective employees into these situations, and then they're evaluating and looking at how they react, and then having conversations, debrief conversations with them afterwards, because they're looking for people who are um, systems thinkers, who are um, uh, open to um, reviewing, and who are continuous learners. And so what they're trying to do is really assess that in the moment, um, so they put them into a systems thinking continuous moment, a continuous learning kind of situation, and then they evaluate um, their employees in that way. Um, the other thing that we're seeing is um, that they're actually um, starting to uh, ask um, aspirational kind of questions about where people see themselves within the organization over time and what kind of organization that they think that they want the company to be. Um, and so uh, they're looking for people who want to grow with the company but also want to help grow the company. Um, and so it's just, uh, there's a, there's a, and so we're cataloging these and trying to um, really s systematically break them apart and talk about the different things that people are doing and, and, and create a, uh, you know, a, a, a set of case studies that, that you could take a look at for your own work. Um, Susan mentioned onboarding. So it's to what extent do you incorporate sustainability training and socialization into a new employee's um, onboarding process? And so it's not, so it ranges from, well, we have a slide on it or we show a video. Um, to um, is onboarding a one day or is onboarding considered a two year process? Um, what comes first in your onboarding? So for instance, if you are an employee of um, TD Bank, which is Canada's, one of Canada's largest um, banks, they have made an enormous commitment over the last couple of years to diversity. And so on the very first day, um, as a customer service representative, your very first day will be spent on 
learning how to interact um, with people respectfully with people um, of different physical disabilities or so that's you know it's your two or three days it's not until two or three days in that they start teaching you how to use the different systems or the machines or anything the first day is really spent on how do you treat people with respect um, and so that sets a tone then for what it would be like to work in that organization um, we also uh, talk about developing, so to what extent are an understanding of sustainability and sustainability related competencies like systems thinking part of employee development. So we're undertaking a project right now and please if you're willing to share your set of competencies I would love to see them. So we're taking a look across um, a whole series of organizations and what constitute competencies and, and leadership competencies at various levels in the organization two competencies that we're seeing that are coming across really, really strongly from a sustainability perspective. Um, one is systems thinking, obviously. The second one is listening. Um, and so to what extent are you making investments in listening? So two of our companies, from Credit Canada, for instance, um, they went through a period where they sent um, uh, all of their senior executives on a two-week listening course. So that was a massive investment that they made. and. Um, and so now in, in their 360 degree feedback sessions, a huge component of that is you're assessed um, uh, as, as a listener. And it's, it's really interesting because I even find when I go to their meetings that it's just socially a very different experience to be in that organization. And, and you know, I, I am a better listener when I am there because it's just socially inappropriate not to be a good listener. It's, it's fascinating. Mm -hmm. Um, similarly, tech resources, um, again, I was talking about them earlier, they're a Canadian mining company, just made a multi-million dollar investment into dialogue training because they realized that it's not just about them listening to employees, but listening to communities because um, as part of their strategy for sustainability, they've outlined that um, they want to be a partner with their communities and be accepted in the communities in which they operate um, and have the company or the communities um, interact with them in a self-defined way and feel that they are um, benefiting from tech's involvement in the, in the community in a self-defined way. And so if you're going to meet that objective, then the key element of that is you need to understand what that self-definition looks like, and that requires a tremendous amount of dialogue and learning. So if you can picture a bunch of um, 40 and 50 year old mining engineers sitting around for a week or so in a, in a um, classroom being asked to tell a story that demonstrates their vulnerability and um, being uh, learning to be vulnerable um, has had a massive transformation on the organization, how the organization thinks about it, its role in the world. Um, what's been most interesting to me, because I've been involved now with them looking over their shoulder for seven years, is um, the stories about how these senior executives now have completely different relationships with their spouses and their children as a result of the work that they've been undertaking in the organization. So really, Chris, a lot to the points that you were raising earlier. something that is even more fundamental than that as far as 
where does systems thinking come from? Mm -hmm. Where does listening and dialogue come from that leads to caring and that leads to, to caring for you know, future generations and others? Yeah, so it's been interesting, and I would love to have more conversations with you and others who are interested in this idea, but um, it's been interesting for me, especially in, in the conversations I've just had recently coming, I've just spent six weeks in South Africa, and talking about some of these issues with, you know, and it's, it's, it's a bit mind-blowing for me to meet with CEOs and COOs and, and ask them what they think the core competencies are, and, and they're telling me things like uh, respect, um, uh, humility, um, hubris. Like, it's, it's really, it's very, very interesting to see um, the, the recognition that the leader of the future is going to be a very different leader than the kind of leader that have been bred into current positions. Um, and so um, we're really, really, and that's why I was saying if you're willing to share the thinking that you've been doing on competencies with us, we'd be very, very interested in hearing that because that's an active conversation for us. Yeah, sorry, Chris. Yeah. Yeah, and I know that there's some excellent work going on among the positive organizational scholars um, to really explore a lot of these things. And I think that um, it, what's interesting to me is I think it's a credit to the work that they've done over the last decade that you're starting to see CEOs and CEOs. And these are, these are actuaries, right? These are not like touchy-feely guys. Well, maybe a different kind of touchy-feely at some point, right? But um, so they, you know, these, these, these guys were pretty hardcore risk analysts, and to, to hear them using this kind of language is, is really quite fascinating. And, and, and to hear them use it as a fundamental business imperative, not as a, this is my second coming, and I'm going to leave a legacy to my grandchildren kind of way, right? This was, if, if our company is going to continue to survive for another 100 years as it has done previously, this is the kind of leadership that's going to take us forward. It's really quite, quite amazing. But there's some interesting work going on around Mind Life Institute. Um, they've pulled together about eight scholars that are really focusing on this, and um, one of them is Shengi out of MIT, and some others. And there's some interesting work going on on this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think this this whole question of the word that just keeps resonating with me over and over again in this in this conversation is care. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, connecting to your book with Ehrenfeld, you know, about how flourishing is so intimately connected to the notion of care. What I keep thinking about is, you know, what we're talking about is the trajectory here on your maternity model is towards a company that's capable of 
a broader and more complex set of cares, right? Uh, for, for the world as well as for its, for, for all of its stakeholders in a sense, its investors for in terms of it being highly productive as well as its employees and its broader. And, and so the question is, and, and, and this notion of a flourishing community of, of people that is anchored around, the, around a, a, a fundamental capacity, capacity of care, it's, it's sort of like, well, what's the HR, what's the method here? Well, the method is you recruit people who are capable of caring, and then you take care of them. Mm -hmm. And the product of that is a company that's capable of care. Um, not, and, 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 and what's fascinating about it is that that sounds very mushy, except that what we're seeing is what you're going to talk about, which is that, it's, is, that, is that caring for your investors is, is, is a byproduct of that. Mm -hmm. and, and, and we saw an amazing um, example of caring from Market Basket, a, 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 a um, supermarket chain based in, in, in New England, chain of 71 stores. Um, it's a third, you know, I, I'll just take two minutes to, to describe no, it. No, please do. It really emphasizes care by employees and by community and by customers. So this is a family business, third generation is in charge right now. There are two cousins that hate each other. They're both called Arthur. One of them is the CEO. The other has big share um, in the business. Um, the bad Arthur. There's a bad Arthur. He fires the CEO. Yeah. He gets the board on his side. He fires the CEO. The employees get on the streets. They start protesting, thousands of them saying they're not protesting for higher wages, they're not protesting for better benefits, they're protesting to get their CEO back. And this is how much they care. And they tell their customers, please don't shop at our stores because we want our CEO back. And they had the lowest prices in New England. Their customers listen to the employees. They care so much about this company and their employees and their culture. They stopped going to Market Basket. They started going elsewhere and bringing their receipts to the store, putting it on the walls and saying, this is how much we're spending elsewhere. Mm -hmm. This is, I think, the possibility of creating care, not just among your employees, but also in your community and, and, and customers if you have their a vendors, good job strategy. Even their vendors stopped delivering. In, even their vendors, deliver, yeah. So mm -hmm. they didn't have food. Mm -hmm. Yes? That, that raises really interesting points that I was looking at a lot in, in recent research and looking at um, how you can cultivate care for people who you will never see potentially or never know because we are all now a part of organizations that are beyond the human scale of comprehension in terms yeah. of my actions yeah. having impact on people whose lives I will never really know about. And so from a systems thinking perspective, I'm interested both from understanding the system kind of theoretically, and understanding how pieces impact other pieces along that system, but then zooming in and having an experiential connection with somebody who's far away from um, your own life and having an empathetic connection. And I wonder, in your work with storytelling, um, to what extent have you found the stories that are most inspiring are about my peers versus stories about faraway places and people, um, and maybe even both? Yeah, so I um, so let me I'll answer the storytelling question in a second. Let me let me say one thing first that I think connects to this and that is that what's been really interesting for me is in the focus groups that we've been doing across companies in multiple different settings around the world, um, 
uh, one phrase comes up over and over, and, and this is in relation to work that we've been doing around trying to understand what we're starting to call sustainability self-efficacy. And this is this idea of a, a, a self-efficacious orientation towards thinking that uh, it is okay to slash I am able to slash I want to um, make sustainability change in this organization. And the phrase that keeps coming up is this notion of permission to care is that um, employees really need to feel that they have permission to care about these issues. That's the gateway to, to self-efficacy um, or one of the really core elements that we're seeing. And so then to your question about sustainability storytelling, um, so we're developing this guidebook and um, if people are interested, I, I would love to get your feedback on our, on our early drafts of it. But if you think back to grade 11 um, English and this notion of a story arc and the idea of challenge, choice, and outcome, a lot of sustainability storytelling, corporate sustainability storytelling, is about challenge and, and outcome. We had this challenge, here's what we did, isn't that great, right? But when we make choices in our own life, and, and we know, I know how to behave, I knew what to put on today to come here because of choices that I've made in the past, right? And the social sanctions that have resulted from those choices, where people said I either did or did not look nice that day, slash people sort of looked at me funny like, you know, you're overdressed, you're underdressed, right? And so we really need to, so it's not so much about, so there's two elements that we've seen that are really important. One is it needs to be relatable, but it doesn't need to be relatable. It can be relatable in the sense that we live in the same place, or we share the same role, or we are all humans, or we are all care about you know, people or whatever. So there's a lot of things that can make it relatable. But so one is your protagonist needs to be relatable. So that, you, that, that person needs to feel that they can put themselves in those shoes. Um, and it can be relatable in the sense of being aspirational. So it can be a story about the CEO, but it needs to be told from the perspective of providing insights into what the CEO is thinking in terms of the future of the company. And so therefore, it makes it relatable to you. Um, the other element is this, is this being explicit about choice and, and a change in choice. And so what you need to do is, is it's, what makes the story interesting is the unexpected choice. And so highlighting the fact that a choice was made differently than probably would have been seen to have been made in a similar situation before, and that's what signals it as a sustainability innovation story. Because that says, I'm making that incremental move, that little bit of pushing the boundary, that little bit of making the space, and guess what? You can do that too, or you are now invited to do the same, or you're allowed to move into that space behind me. And so that's what we've been working with. And so um, uh, we're working, and we're, we're quite excited. Um, ConocoPhillips has been making some, um, some really great investments with us as they had a bunch of corporate videos, and we've gone back to reshoot them. And now what we're doing is we're creating ones that were their typical challenge outcome, and then we're creating new ones that are challenge choice outcome, and they're going to um, we're going to run them pre-post with real Conoco employees and really get try and assess the idea of what does create memorable messages and which which kind of stories actually um, result do they result in a different um, feeling about uh, does it does it change these their their sustainability self efficacy from hearing the stories so so that'll become part of the guidebook which we're quite excited about. I'll just add um, one thing working with one of the organizations that you know just as a marketing based large consumer products company that I think is a great lesson in the power of storytelling but also that what stories are powerful to 
develop your brand and to your consumer may not always resonate with your employee. And that you gotta be careful to think one can do both. Um, mm -hmm. So one of our clients uh, works globally and has this absolutely powerful set of videos about some of the great work that they are doing both to help women's self-esteem, and so you may have seen the Large Dove campaign. Um, you know, 35 million views, I believe, on, on this Life Boy soap, um, you know, this child whose father's going to the temple because he's lived past his fifth birthday. I mean, these things make you cry when you see them as a consumer, love the brand, et cetera. It doesn't help their employees understand what to do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, so they can be so proud that they work for the Dove brand or et cetera but it doesn't help increase their ability. It might help with motivation, maybe a little mm -hmm. bit, but it doesn't help with their ability. And so one of the things that they've started to um, work with us on is finding those employees who have accomplished something really powerful as it relates to sustainability, fought through one of these barriers, come up with a great idea, something like that, to package that as a story for the rest of the employees because it gives permission to yeah. care. And it celebrates them taking a different choice. Celebrates taking a choice, but yeah. also increases people's ability of how do I do something different in this colossal large organization? Because they know that they're not going to come in to streamlined, you know, lack of bureaucracy, lack of process, completely self-autonomous, you know, overnight. That it's still a pain in the rear end to get stuff done internally sometimes. So how do you tell stories that enable people to break through those boundaries? And and they, so you know, they need to be relatable. They need to have a hero element that's suitable for that context. So for instance, Celestica, which is a major electronics manufacturing company, they're um, uh, they're a Canadian company, and they um, so they have a whole bunch of engineers, right? And uh, and they have a culture of continuous improvement. They have a culture of lean. And so when they were looking for a sustainability story to highlight, um, they looked to this guy, his name is Tony McDermott, and, they, and um, uh, he decided that um, he was, they were sending out um, their uh, uh, solar panels on pallets, and the pallets weren't coming back. And he decided that what he could do is he could, he could wash and reuse the pallets. And so he started this process of um, uh, he, they were changing out their um, uh, their cafeteria, and so that you know the the thing that used to slide the trays on. So he decommissioned that, and he used it to create this pallet washer that was like highly efficient and reused water and all this kind of stuff. And so, and then of course ended up saving tons of trees, saving the company all sorts of money, all those kinds of things. But but the key was that you know it's it's in the idea that it was really motivating to employees there because they're all a bunch of engineers who like to tinker and who like, you know, so that became a hero story in that context. So you really need to know, and again, would that be super cool for customers? Maybe not, right? But was really, really important for that culture in which, guess what, all of that tinkering energy that you have can now be turned to sustainability. Um, so we have a a set of other ones in here around sustainability roles. So to what extent have you established roles within the organization? What we start to see is the spectrum of you start to create roles, the roles become more senior, and then actually there's a, a withdrawal of roles in the sense that the roles then get distributed out into business units. And so we see this evolution of roles over time. Um, similarly, we see this evolution in terms of how you allocate to senior leaders. So to what extent do you allocate the responsibility for delivering on the um, sustainability agenda? So 
initially it gets concentrated into a CSO and then it starts to become more broadly across an exec team. Um, to what extent are you translating organizational sustainability goals and targets into employee responsibilities and expectations? Um, and so this then comes back to the HR team as well is are they able to, are they in a position to help employees to be able to translate those goals? So Suncor Energy, which is Canada's largest company or RBC depending on the day, um, and, uh, and, and our largest oil sands firm, you know, they, they put sustainability, they had every employee put sustainability goals in, but the initial goals when, when they first rolled out became things like, well, I'm, I'm going to set a goal to always hold the handrail when I, when I go up and down the stairs, or, you know, because employees actually didn't know how to set sustainability goals, and so what they realized was they actually had to make an investment into helping um, and get more senior. So then they created this, um, this goal setting process of um, passing goals down. So it became a very, it's a long process, but they pass goals down the levels, and then they actually collect those goals back up. And the reason they do that is what you find is that one person's goal gets passed down, and then it becomes under someone else's responsibility that the, the, the person who that goal has been passed to doesn't actually have the ability to change that. And so, so then these goals got passed up so that you would realize then at senior levels that, well, the operations, the COO has passed down a goal to someone that, that needs to actually be dealt with by the CFO. And so they created this up-down process. And that has um, created a, a considerable refinement, although, and it's taken some time for them to learn how to do that process efficiently. Um, to what extent do you link employee compensation to the achievement of set sustainability objectives? So we're seeing companies now that, um, for instance, are, are saying 50% um, of the discretionary compensation for senior leadership teams, um, specifically around uh, their sustainability and, and safety goals, um, five zero you know, as opposed to 15% or 5%. So we're seeing some quite aggressive targets. Um, now, those companies are companies where, um, I keep going in the wrong direction here. Um, those companies are companies where um, they, they had to make those big investments into really understanding what the right metrics would be and that they had to, you know, you, you can't just turn around and say it's gonna be 50% if you don't have the foundation underneath it to support it. Um, interesting work going on in some companies around the extent to which you move people with sustainability values and skills into higher positions in the organization by incorporating sustainability criteria into decisions about advancement. So TD Bank, for instance, sent very clear signals not only that um, if you want to advance in this organization, diversity should be important to you, but unless you are a champion of diversity, you will not advance in this organization. And so really, um, the strength and the tone of that has, has been really, really important. Um, and uh, we're going to hear a lot more about this um, in a minute, but uh, this idea of employee well-being, to what extent does the organization signal its commitment to employee well-being? So to what extent um, do you ensure that all um, employees receive a fair and living wage? Have you taken a look at the um, gap between the highest paid and the lowest paid earners in your organization. Um, what kind of benefits and flexibility are you providing to employees? What kind of investments are you making in their own growth? Um, these, yeah. But, you know, I think we all are, we all 
recognize that even companies that look at economic well-being, um, the gap between the highest paid, lowest paid, all those things that you're talking about, uh, most corporations do a lousy job of ensuring well-being. Mm -hmm. You've got all these programmatic things to yes. HR, right? Like yeah. smoking cessation and uh, yoga and all these other things, but it's programmatic and, and people don't feel like So, what is this? What, how do you define employee well-being as it relates to sustainability? I think that's an avenue that could be hugely expanded. Yeah, I really agree with you. And so, it's been interesting to see these companies, for instance. Um, so, we're seeing some really interesting reactions because initially companies were saying, "Oh, we're great at this. We have phenomenal benefits. We have this yoga program." And then, and then what we were hearing is, uh, you know, um, I shouldn't, I shouldn't have to do a yoga program the reason I'm having to do a yoga program is because I'm spending 16 hours in front of a computer a day, right? And so this is where um, we've been having some very interesting conversations with companies about what does it really look like to treat a person as a whole person, and that's where I think your work is, you know, phenomenal and groundbreaking in trying to, and if you could really define a scale for what constitutes a good job, I think it would be so important and so valuable of a, of a comp contribution in the space for sure. Um, it kind of seems like this employee well-being is a lot being bundled in there, right? Yeah. That, that, that may be a practice that gets disaggregated. For sure. And a lot of these... Instead of, you know, like living wage being one. Yeah. And, you know, something about people's, you know, inquiring into people's purpose and, you know, and, and there may be a, a number of different for sure, and, and for each one of these practices, yeah, and for each one of these practices, there is, you know, 20, 30, 50 profs who are doing great research on these things, and so what this is really is about bringing it all together and starting to say, guess what, this is included in what we mean by sustainability. This is part of, of thinking about what it means to be holistic, to holistically care and to be a good business. Um, so linking, to what extent do you encourage employees to bring their personal sustainability behaviors to work or connect organizational sustainability activities to their personal lives? And so this is really, um, is about uh, how do you span those boundaries? How do you cross across into um, creating consistency between the lives that people want to live and the li lives that they live in, in the organization where they work? Um, and leveraging interest is um, about engaging employees and identifying and reconciling inconsistencies on the ground. So um, what are those, do you have a process in place to actively engage people in identifying inconsistencies and do you have a process in place and resources in place to actually try and address them? Because that creates a huge barrier um, to the livedness of an individual employee's experience. Um, we also talk about investing in communities. So to what extent does your organization contribute resources to the communities in which you operate? This is another one that could be broken out and has been broken out into a huge number of things, but it's important to have it on there. Um, and, and we're seeing um, that there really cannot, you know, it's, it's not just about philanthropy. There can't, if, there, if it is, there's that sense of separation, and so therefore people perceive it as a huge inconsistency. So where does that bring us? Um, so what I would encourage you is to reflect on where your organization could make quick gains. So there are some things in here where you say, hey, yeah, we don't include um, uh, any mention of sustainability in our uh, employee descriptions when we recruit for people. Maybe we could just stick a, stick a statement in there 
and, um, and that could be a quick change that we could make, right? And then there's other ones where there's going to be more investment that's required if you're going to build a capacity for life cycle thinking, if you're going to build a capacity for systemic thinking, you need to make deeper investments. Um, and so therefore you need to plan for the investments that are going to be needed to shift the culture. And then the last piece of it is you could consider engaging in a more systematic inventory of your efforts. And if you have interest in doing that and you um, are interested in, in supporting the um, and joining the, the work that we've been doing, um, then we would love to have you join our community of thoughtful corporate change agents and practical researchers who are trying to co-create knowledge and tools to positively influence environmental and social systems through good business. So thank you very much. So for each of those questions that you walked folks through, when you're walking an organization through, are they giving themselves a ranking on a scale of like one to five or one to ten yeah. um, to kind of figure out, and what's the What's a one and what's a five? Or yeah, so that's, I don't know if you, if you saw that first one where I, and so we have one of, we have a big page long yeah. thing for each of these. In addition to that, um, we are creating for each of those levels, we're creating a set of stories of what that looks like in organizations so people can get kind of the look and feel of it. Um, and so ultimately then um, in the initial stages, um, we help calibrate in that process because I've found that some organizations are just really optimistic and some organizations are just a little bit hard on themselves. So some organizations always round down and some organizations always round up. Um, <laughs> and so I've been trying to create that calibration. Um, and so that's the, but, uh, you know, as we develop more uh, as we as we get it all written down and and get the different case studies and stuff then then we're starting to see over time that as our descriptions get longer and as our you know as we provide more information to it that people are getting we have we're having to do less recalibrating so that's it's coming along and so the aim is to have a, a this tool that you can fill in and then it allows you to track that and then you can store your data over time and so you can see the changes that you're making. So we have one company, for instance, that's going to take their wheel and put it as part of their sustainability report and they've said these are the, these are the places where we're going to try and expand our wheel this year. And so for folks in the room, is there any way for them to be able to sort of fill out a wheel or is that something that people have to work with you very directly to go through that process? Yeah, so this is what we're trying to do and I, it, it actually if you go to embedprojectandnotembeddingproject.org, um, you'll see that it's, the website has already started but we've found that people found that confusing so we're just in the process of changing the URL to embeddingproject.org so it'll be up in a couple of days but if you just go to embedproject.org, you'll see um, that we're, so the aim is, and it's not there yet, but that we will have um, a whole website where people can go in and they can click and they can conduct a basic assessment completely for free and totally on their own. And then those organizations that want to engage in a deeper part of becoming part of the research, then, um, then we can make arrangements to do that. And so the idea is, it's all to, because we want to create a large, rigorous data set of comparable data that we want to engage with companies to make sure that the, da the data quality is high. And also, frankly, we don't want someone who's not you coming in and filling out your data on your behalf, right? So we want to make sure that we know who we're actually dealing with. Yeah. I'm curious how the wheel, I guess, I mean, um, I the wheel relates 
general data collection around the key performance indicators for So we see it as a set of complement, sort of like an input-output kind of thing, right? So we've been developing this input tool, and we're also now starting to develop a bunch of assessments on the output side. So we're in the process of developing systematic assessments around sustainability, self-efficacy, collective efficacy for sustainability, um, sustainability integration behaviors. And so what we're doing is trying to develop a set of rigorously derived um, questions that you could then potentially add to your... Um, employee annual employee engagement surveys so that then you could be looking at this is what we're you know so the maturity model helps you think about what you should do next these other assessments would help you understand whether what you're doing is having the impacts that you're intending and so that's where it's it's a it's you know this is the start of a 10-year project right where we um, where we start to build the collective data set over time but the idea as Susan was saying is that we, we need to be measuring these things both cross-sectionally and longitudinally to really understand whether or not, instead of just a bunch of retrospective one-off success but, but, story case studies. But I, but I would say that also, so that's on the embedding in organizational culture as a measurement challenge, right? There's also kind of the work that you guys do with Faxia where one of the lines, one of the practices within this model is to what extent are you, you know, assessing and reporting on your on your sustainability metrics, right? Yeah. And 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 if and if you're at level two and you want to move to level three, then maybe what you need to do is use Go the next year tool yeah. to measure the carbon footprint of your extended operations or or or, or right? so, so if you want it, we would send you to you to to life cycles, right? This is right. if you're weak on or life cycles. Life cycle analysis. So, yeah. so, so in the last session, we were a couple of you guys were here that we were talking about this idea of a, a gateway tool or a meta tool. This is one way of thinking about a meta tool, right, is, is a maturity. Yeah. So the question, I, you know, we can take this offline, but whether one is measuring or collecting data is, is a is an assessment. Yes. Um, how well? Everything along that line, diversity, you know. Has data that needs to be gathered associated with it. Those, yeah. Those are the kinds of data that yeah. you could not say a tool, for example, is collecting some yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm trying to create sort of the big picture. And so it really is a, a gestalt, right? And so it's really, it's about, it's about a, a, a forced, um, a reflexive activity. And so it's really about the ref reflexivity of it, right? It's not, it's not a, there's, no, there's nothing magic about it. It's, it's, it. it structures reflexivity. And, and so what we find, and that's where, in theory, yes, I can just put it out on the internet and people can just play with it, and that's one level of reflexivity. But what we're trying to do is encourage organizations to engage in a deeper level of reflexivity that involves focus groups with their employees and to provide them a structured approach to doing that. Because what we hear from organizations is the value in participating in this project actually came from asking the questions and the process of going around the organizations and asking the questions. And just by asking the questions, it provoked all sorts of things. So as an example, in Suncor, the, the HR group really had not had a lot of connection with the sustainability group. But in the process of going around to do this, the HR group said, you know what, actually, come to think of it, 
there is a huge readiness for this in this organization, and I guess it's just because we've been busy that we haven't thought about doing this. And in the course of a year, it was like bam, 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 bam. They suddenly just took up a whole bunch of this, and then they turned back to the sustainability team and said, you can help us solve a problem, right? We have to recruit 2,500 people this year. We don't know where we're going to find them. We go out, and, and people don't want to work for oil sands. They find it very unconvincing. And so can you give us genuine, real sustainability stories that we can tell with authenticity? Because if we can, we can recruit better people. And, and so that's been a really interesting thing. And in the process of recruiting those better people, those better people come in with a different set of values and push the organization further towards sustainability. It's virtuous, we hope. Yeah. One of the things as, um, that I find working as a, as a tool provider in the space um, is that trying to figure out where the organization is on sustainability is really important to put together, in our case, the right employee engagement programs. Because if we're coming into an organization that's a one on a bunch of fronts, the types of programs that we're gonna run to engage employees in sustainability is gonna, should be very different than if we come to an organization that's trying to go from a three to a four or four to a five. Mm -hmm. It's just a whole different set of programs. And if we don't get that right on mm -hmm. day one, then you've got all these great programs that make absolutely no sense for your culture. Mm -hmm. <laughs> no they're way. aspirational, yeah, but they're, they're not. They're aspirational and it's great, it, but I liken it, just put it in a day-to-day -day context. You know, um, choosing to install solar is a big decision for a homeowner, and it's a lot around increasing the person's ability as well as increasing their motivation. And if that's the first thing you try to convince somebody who's brand new to thinking about sustainable living to try to do as opposed to having a vegetarian lunch on Monday, the hurdle to get somebody engaged and feeling good and moving forward is just enormous. And it's the same thing in organizations. And so I think having a way for organizations to consistently kind of understand where they are and then for us then align the kinds of programs, not only to what their goals are, but where they are, is, is very, very helpful. And that's why I was thrilled when I ran into the work that they were doing. Yeah, yeah, and, and to be able to reflect on where the organization is and then identify those areas Right, and make sure that the programs you're running are not only helping them the goals, but in the case of employee engagement, the goals are the right goals given where they are. Mm -hmm. You talked earlier about, there was one thought of the slide, you said a company might be very advanced, had become very advanced in one area and then discovered that their metrics hadn't kept up. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm wondering how this, this tool uh, helps to identify the correlation between those two things. So you can look at a list and say, well, this is a one and this is a three, and so I gotta bring up bring one up. But how do you know that three is being prevented from going to four because of the So, so that's it's been three years of um, so We've gone into um, about 40 companies now and interviewed 100, over 100 people in each company and asked them about their longitudinal sustainability journey. And we've asked them in particular about places where they got stuck or places where they had to turn back. And then what we've been doing is systematically coding across. And when we start seeing the same point show up in a, a bunch of companies, then we bring it into the model. And so it's... Obviously, it's going to be a bit culturally dependent. It's going to be a bit, you know, but, but by and large, we're seeing a tremendous set of parallels, and a lot of them make a lot of sense, right? You can't make 
50% of your compensation around sustainability if you don't have any metrics to measure it, right? Well, like a lot of these are actually quite common sense. And, and so it's amazing that sometimes, you know, I, it's, I don't know, you probably get the same thing, Chris, but p people come up to me and they're like, oh, you do stuff about embedding sustainability? Oh, it's, it's so clear. It's just all about incentives, really. It's about incentives, you know? Or like it's all about, it's what, what gets measured gets managed, you know? And so, you know, people have these sort of, and so there, there are these sort of quick bullet solutions that people go after, and then they sort of go, huh, that didn't work at all, right? Oh, gee, that turned out to be, you know, have a whole bunch of unintended consequences. And so that's the work that we've been trying to systematically capture. And so the tool will evolve over time because this isn't set in stone. And so it's an active project. It's a living project. It's a provisional understanding. And we keep iterating it as we go along. But our iterations are now becoming smaller. So I, are you saying then that the tool is being uh, developed to be prescriptive then? So, when, so that if I am you know, a company that goes in and I do my wheel and I see that disparity between those two things, I can then identify and say, oh, okay, well, it's obvious because of where it lies. Yes. Yeah, so what happens is um, this, the, your set of, what you can't see in here are a whole set of numbers, and this is the algorithm that sits underneath um, that we've been teasing out. And so what happens is then um, we say, look, if you're only sitting at a, at a one on on signaling, then you, you're, you know, according to everybody else who's already gone through this, that's a problem. And so that's why for us, for the, for the ongoing data gathering, we want to make this tool available to a lot of companies to be able to, um, to use it. But we also need to have that engagement with you in order to continue to, with at least a good subset of that company, we need to have a richer engagement with you in order to better refine our understanding of this going forwards. Um, because it's, it's, a, it's, it's an active research project. Yeah. And that we're trying to create a public good out of. Why don't we take one more question and then we'll move into a break and come back for um, hearing about the work that Zainab is doing. Mm -hmm. Are there any other questions for you, you mentioned a lot about systems thinking. I'm yeah. wondering how much have you been able to include the places to intervene in a system? So this, for example, this there's a question of priority within the goals of the organization. Mm -hmm. but not so much am I telling stories, but how does the where does this fit in the organization's priorities overall and kind of that needle, that kind of thing. So I'm just wondering, you mentioned system thinking quite a few times, how much has the places to intervene in the system been able to inform you? Yeah, so um, what we've seen is that this pathway, the planning pathway, so it's interesting because um, a lot of the work around uh, because this originally started as a question of, of embedding into culture, um, and then it became broader just embedding into embedding, you know, embedding into the organization. Um, and it's interesting because um, we still see a lot of organizations that they, they kind of stall out on the planning pathway, so they manage to get to the point where they've 
they do a materiality analysis, but the materiality is a very like classic GRI 3.1. I talk to a bunch of stakeholders. I create a materiality matrix that you know says that that everything's important. And then, so I just group it into, because I don't want to offend any of my stakeholders and say that they're not important. So then I, you know, boil it down into like five very broad focus areas. Wait for it. Water, energy, community. <laughs> Sounding familiar, right? So then, so then it's like, so, you know, there's some fundamental pieces missing of that. And, and it's, it's this one. Right? And in the prioritizing, we talk about this idea of, and this is why I think this context-based strategy-making guide is going to be so important, because at some point, the organization has to reach the point where at a senior level, um, you know, it's not the sustainability team making a sustainability strategy. It is the corporate strategy. And that corporate strategy acknowledges that the growth of that organization is going to be constrained by a set of planetary boundaries and the necessity to maintain a social foundation. Right? And so that is included in our dimensionalizing. Uh, so in all of, all, of the, all of the practices, there's an element of transparency that goes out throughout them. There's an element of context acknowledgement that goes out throughout them. Like there's a set of common things that go out throughout all of the dimensions. And it's those elements that bring us to the kind of organization that Chris was describing earlier. Um, and so, you know, it's interesting because we started with... Um, we started with the, the all going up to blue, and then we had our first meeting of our working group members, and, and James Greynald, who I told you about earlier, who is one of the original guys, a really thinking kind of guy, and he comes to me afterwards and he goes, why do I have a feeling there's a purple coming? And sure enough, we did, we went out and we said, like, what would it really look like? And it's not that every organization is going to become transformational, right? Because I actually don't think that's where we're headed. I think that our definition of what constitutes well embedded needs to shift. And that there will be some organizations that will be transformational in the sense that they, you know, I think they, they all need to transform, Chris, don't get me wrong, right? But like, but we're reserving transformational for the truly, the organizations that are actually seeking to transform others, that they're gonna go out and they're gonna try and shift their industry, they're gonna try and shift the whole marketplace and that, you know, maybe not 100% of companies are going to get to that point. So, but that the well-embedded companies would be transformed for sure. So, um, yeah, I don't, I don't feel like I answered that question. But anyway, it's, uh, where does this, you know, I think all of that systemic stuff fits in, in all those places. But, you know, I, I think... The idea for this is to provoke a conversation in the organization about making those investments. So where do you need to dedicate those resources to making those shifts? This is never going to predict that for you because that's going to be independent for each organization. But that's where the action planning phase and the communities of practice come in, where we bring together organizations into smaller communities of practice. Okay, thank you, Susan. And uh, uh, Stephanie, I just want to say your research is so fantastic. Oh, well, thank you. Well, I'm really excited about yours, so this is great. <laughs> Thank you so much, Rachel. Um, so so I, I, I will talk about the good job strategy and the good jobs and sustainability. And I think there are two different links to sustainability. And we, we kind of talked about both of them in, in, in the previous session. So the, the first one is that to engage our employees in sustainability uh, efforts, we need employee engagement, right? So, so we need to engage employees. 
But the second one is that we really have a social sustainability problem. Um, according to some estimates, one in four working adults in this country do not make enough to take care of their families. Mm -hmm. You think about employee well-being, they don't even make enough to make a living to, and then we can think about yoga and everything, mm -hmm. everything um, else. I, I've been studying the, this issue in the retail industry, and if you look at jobs in the retail industry, if, you, if I were to make an advertisement for a job, I would list poverty level wages, unpredictable schedules, schedules that change all the time with very little notice, like one or two weeks in advance, we'll provide you your schedules and we will make changes all the time and we'll ship you in you know, a few hours. And then we'll design your job in a way that will almost make it impossible for you to do a good job because we won't train you and we won't give you enough time. So these are some of the components of the types of jobs that we see in the retail industry. Um, and and the, the good news is that we can change all this. We can make these jobs better jobs in a way that actually benefits the customers and benefits investors. And that's what I'm going to talk about today. But, but if you want to do all that, you have to do it through operational experience. Uh, I'm an operations management professor, so of course I will argue for operational <laughs> excellence, and, and, and that will be the core of my talk uh, today. But, but let, me, let me tell you where, where, how I came to this conclusion. So in late 90s, I was a doctoral student. I'm an operations management person interested in supply chain management. I was studying retail supply chains. We had this fantastic research project with a bunch of students and, and professors from Wharton and Harvard Business School. And our goal was to really improve retail supply chains through uh, optimizing inventory management, forecasting demand better, optimizing assortment, all, all, these, all these things. Uh, we said they have great data. If they apply our algorithms to their great data, we'll have them maximize their profits. During one of our conferences, um, the CEO of Office Depot at the time, he raised his hand and he said, you as academics are great at you know, thinking about all, all, all this optimization stuff, but guess what? My supply chain actually delivers the product to my stores, but then the product is, is in a place where no one can find it. My customers can't find them, my employees can't find them. Sometimes the products will make it all the way from China to the back room, and it will stay in the back room and never make it to the selling floor. Another problem we heard was, you know, retailers make all this investment in information technology. We think they can do great things with their data, but their data are inaccurate. Mm -hmm. Inventory data, sale data are inaccurate. They make all these plans with their, with their uh, suppliers about when to promote things, how to promote things, but those promotions are not carried out. When I looked at retail supply chains, I saw that the stores were so full of operational problems that affected sales and profits, labor productivity. And, and so on, and of course customer satisfaction. When I looked at what caused all these problems, I saw the answer in employee engagement or in labor practices. So I found that stores that had more employee turnover had more problems. Stores that had less training had more problems. Stores that were more understaffed had more problems. And in fact, I found that most retailers were operating in what I call the vicious cycle of retailing. And the vicious cycle really starts with the mentality. And, and Chris, you mentioned this in the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the previous talk, the mentality of seeing people as just a cost. Not employees who have hearts and minds and, and, and hands that, that have con contribute, but just a cost and a cost to be minimized. So when you have that mentality of having employees as just a cost to be minimized, you don't invest in them. And that low investment in people 
leads to those operational problems that, that I mentioned to you, it leads to um, poor customer service, that leads to low sales and profits. And then of course, when sales are lower, then retailers can't invest in their people because their labor budgets are lower, and then this vicious cycle continues. So my five, six years of research was all done with companies that operate in this vicious cycle, which is bad for customers, it's bad for companies because they leave all the money on the table, but it's downright brutal for employees. And I asked, is there a better way to operate? And what would it take for companies to operate differently? And I deliberately went after companies um, that could, on the one hand, offer low prices to their customers, but on the other hand, operate in a much more of a virtuous cycle than a vicious cycle. So luckily, I was able to find some companies that operated that way. So I studied four different companies, Costco, Trader Joe's. Probably most people are familiar with Costco and Trader Joe's. Uh, Mercadona, how many of you have heard of Mercadona? Okay, Mercadona is a Spanish retailer. They're Spain's largest um, supermarket chain. They have about 1,300 stores. They have the lowest prices in Spain. Um, and incredibly successful company. This is what I show here is their profits since 1995 to 2012. And the red line shows, the, the blue line shows their uh, sales and then the red line shows their, their profits. They've been growing like crazy. They are capturing a lot of market share from their competitors. And if you look at them from a productivity lens, their labor productivity has been increasing over time. Now, Mercadona um, offers higher wages than its competitors. It provides employees their schedules one month in advance. 85% of its employees are full-timers who work, you know, who, who work in stable shifts. Um, and there are lots of lots of other benefits that they give to their to their employees. So Mercadona is one of the companies. Now, now my fourth company on that list was QuickTrip. How many of you had heard of QuickTrip? One, two, three. Okay, so a few people. So QuickTrip is like Mercadona also offers low prices. It's a convenience store chain with gas stations. Um, it's a convenience store chain with gas stations, but it has been in Fortune's 100 best companies to work for 12 years in a row. And if you are a customer at QuickTrip, uh, you get in and out of the store really fast. Do we have customers there, customers of QuickTrip? Yeah, do you get in and out very fast? Good. What's that? Exclusive. So the reason that you can get in and out really fast is their employees can process three people in one minute at the checkout. And the reason they can do that is, one, because QuickTrip really trusts their employees. Uh, they all share cash registers, so anyone can work any cash register that increases speed. Uh, trust is, of course, very important for that. They also have high security cameras um, <laughs> and target banks that, that, that can tell who's working with um, But the other thing is that their employees are empowered to do numbers in their heads. So if you bought a bottle of water, it's 85 cents. By the time you're approaching the cash register, she has 15 cents ready for you. You give your dollar, she gives you the 15 cents without ever scanning your bottle of water. So that, 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 that provides quickness. So, 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 so it's, a, it's, a, it's a good company to work for. Again, higher wages, uh, better schedules, all, all the attributes of, of a good job, and low prices. And when you look at QuickTrip's performance, it's an outlier in the, um, in the retail industry, in the convenience store industry. I know one metric that will, be, that will resonate with you all is shrink. 
um, because that, that's related, you know, related to waste, related to sustainability. The industry average is 1.5%, quick trips is 0.7%. Mm -hmm. Their employees are more productive, their per store profits are 89% higher than not the industry average, but the top quartile in the industry. So highly successful company, what I, so, so, so these are just um, some facts about these companies, but what I want to say is that the four companies that I studied, QuickTrip, Trader Joe's, Costco, Mercadona, these four companies all offer low prices to their customers, good service to their customers, good jobs to their employees, and fantastic returns to their shareholders all at the same time. And, and, and when you look at them, you see that they are so different from one another. I mean, Costco is a membership club, QuickTrip is a convenience store chain. Monolu is a supermarket in Spain. The types of products they carry is different, their locations are different, their customer base is different. But when I analyzed them, I saw that they, they got to the greatness in very much the same way. And this is where I teach my operations story. Because when I, when I analyzed them, I saw um, that they had a very different approach to the way that they designed the work itself. And they achieved operational excellence through the design of the work and investment in people. And through the work itself and operations is what they, 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 they achieved all the other things. Through this, they had higher employee productivity. Through this, they had less waste. Through this, they had lower costs. Through this, they had better customer service. And through this, through designing the work well, um, they had better jobs and more engaged employees. So I found their secret, despite all the differences among them, their secret to be their approach to operations and work design. And I'll, and I'll tell you specifically about the practices that I observed among these four companies that led to this um, great performance. And the practices, I'm, I'm going to go through these practices. These practices are by no means uh, specific to these companies and by no means specific to retail because we have seen these practices work extremely well in a wide range of settings and, and underlie excellence in, in operations. So, and I call this combination of uh, practices, this, is, this wasn't my um, title, this was my publisher's title, but, but, but I call the combination of these practices now the good job strategy. And the good job strategy really have two big components and they're both related to, 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 to operations. Um, but one is, at the core of all operations is investment in people. You can have great operating designs, but if you don't have great people to execute those designs every single day, then you won't achieve excellence. So these companies recognize that, and these companies think philosophically that their employees are not a cost to be minimized, but their employees are actually strategic assets. So they invest in them. They pay them more, they offer them better benefits, they offer them better schedules, they train them more, and, 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 and they reset them up for success. So that's the first component. But then the second component is a set of operational choices that ensure that the jobs are better jobs, employees are more productive, less is, uh, waste is less, uh, customers are happier, etc. And, and And when I looked at these companies, I found four operational practices that led to those great um, outcomes. The first one is offer less. I'm gonna go through each one of these uh, in detail with you. The second one is standardize and empower. The third one is cross-train, and the fourth one is operate with Slack. Now, let me start with offer, um, offer less. I think 
and this will resonate with the sustainability crowd because the, the I think what we keep hearing is that the more we offer to the customers, the better. The more, the better assumption. And when you look at this assumption in retail, you see that things have gotten increasingly complicated in retail. If you look at a retail, a supermarket um, in 1940s, a typical supermarket would carry about 4,000 products. Not a typical supermarket carries 40,000 different products. 40,000 different products. And, 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 and these different products, you know, variety is good, right? Variety is good, competition is good. But let me just give you a sense of how much variety we have and how much waste we have by giving you an example from toothpaste. So if you don't have a favorite toothpaste, next time you go to the supermarket or, 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 or a store, just look at the toothpaste aisle and this is what you will be um, uh, faced with. So first, you have to choose among different brands. It's good that we have lots of brands. Competition is good, lowers cost, increases quality. Okay, great. So you, you know, Colgate, Crest, Arm & Hammer, Close-Up, Sensodyne, Signal, Tom's of Maine, etc. And then you have to choose among different functions. <laughs> it turns out that the toothpaste can play lots of different functions in your mouth. Uh, from whitening to plaque prevention to gingivitis prevention, cavity protection, tartar control, the list goes on and on. If you look at Colgate, in the whitening category alone, offers total whitening, total advanced whitening, whitening with oxygen bubbles, sparkling white, simply white, max white with minimite bright strips. <laughs> I'm not making this up. <laughs> and then we're not stopped yet, then there are flavors. Brisk mint, frosty mint, cool mint, crisp mint, cinnamon, vanilla, bubble, watermelon, bubble glum, and then you can get it in paste or gel. You see the point, there are lots of different options. And for an operations management <laughs> professor, this is a bunch of waste. <laughs> um, because if you look at more choices, your entire supply chain now is costier. Right? From manufacturing to distribution to, to, to stores, the costs are higher. Your employees, every day when they perform their jobs, they make more errors. Uh, one of the, um, just, 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 just to give you a, a, a quick example of an error, this is one of my favorite examples. One of the VP of a supply chain for a supermarket told us, he said every year we sell 25% more medium red tomatoes than we ever receive to our stores. <laughs> Every year we sell 25% more medium red tomatoes than we ever receive to our stores. How is that possible? Any ideas? The key and the wrong code. Yeah, there are like 15 different types of tomatoes in the mm -hmm. store, and for a checkout person who's been there for three days, any tomato would like a medium, medium red tomato. So higher product variety makes the employee's job actually more difficult and leads to more, more errors. And higher product variety lower, lowers uh, productivity of employees because there's been shelf space, they need to go back and forth between the selling floor and, and, and the back room, so, so, so lower uh, productivity. And even from a customer's perspective, there are now lots of studies in, in um, consumer behavior that, that high productivity might not be a great thing from, the, from a customer's um, standpoint. So when I looked at the model retailers, that had the combination of low prices, good jobs, great performance, I found that they offered fewer products, 
than their competitors do. A typical Mercadona stores offers only 8,000 products compared to 40,000. Trader Joe's offers 4,000 products compared to uh, 40,000. Again, Costco offers only 4,000 compared to Sam's Club, which is more than 5,500. And, and of course, when you offer fewer products, then you have all the benefits of, you know, you know your costs are not high, um, employees are happier, etc. So, so offering less, and, and, and one thing um, I would focus here, in retail, offer less shows itself in terms of lower product variety. In different environments, it can, it can manifest itself in, in different ways. But, 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 but what, what's important is to be focused, to, to understand what it is that you're delivering to your customers and be consistent with that. If you are delivering low prices, which my mall retailers try to do, then offering too many choices is not as consistent with, with, with that. But offering less doesn't just lower costs, but it also makes employees' jobs better jobs. Because now they can be familiar with the products that they offer. Now when a customer approaches them, they can engage the customer. They can tell the customer about what the product is about and how to use it. Or if the product is not there, what's the good substitute? Here, an operational choice not only lowers your cost, not only reduces your waste, but it makes the job a better job for the employee. And oftentimes, employees go to work trying to do a good job. And if you can design the work in a way that enables them to, to do a good job, then they are a lot happier. Um, so this is this is this this is the first um, operational choice, and then and then you might wonder, you know, these companies all offer less. Do their sales suffer? Uh, when I look at the performance of these small retailers vis-a-vis -vis their competitors, and you know, sales per square foot is a very um, highly used number in in um, retail operations. You see that they actually perform so much better than their competitors. So, um, Costco, Trader Joe's, Trader Joe's sales for, you know, a typical supermarket makes about $600 per square foot. Trader Joe's is a lot higher than $2,000 per square foot. It's a huge improvement. Same thing with Mercadona, same thing with Quick Trip. So that's, that's the first operational choice. The second operational choice, and Stephanie, as you were talking, I, I thought about this, you talked about exploration versus exploitation. Uh, sorry, uh, innovation versus uh, fulfillment. Fulfillment, yes, because you didn't want to use the word explo exploitation uh, in, in the sustainability angle. But, but if you think about um, the work design, there are two different um, extremes. One is, oh, let's empower our employees so much. And then the other extreme is, let's standardize everything that they do. Um, and oftentimes people talk about, you know, is this environment a good candidate for standardization or is this environment a good candidate for empowerment? Mm -hmm. But what I have found among these companies and other operational excellent companies was that when they approached work design, they did a combination of standardization with empowerment. Mm -hmm. They standardized, like your truck driver, they standardized all those tasks that benefit from efficiencies, that are ergonomically so much better, that should be done the same way consistently across all the employees, period. Uh, so they standardize those and they monitor, they, they make sure that people comply with those standards. But at the same time, they empower their employees not only to improve those standards, but to make, to, to make a whole bunch of other improvements and to make decisions for their local customers all the time. So we talked about you know, the importance of employee empowerment and involvement in sustainability efforts. 
these companies all have processes, mechanisms, through which they hear the voice of their employees who are in touch with their customers every single day. Um, and they have mechanisms to take those, th those employee suggestions all the way to the top and, 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 and figure out which ones work, which ones don't work, and they have a process for testing them out and, 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 and putting them in practice if, if it works um, across you know, ma many different settings. So they look at it from a very, um, very scientific, um, scientific way. Of course, the, the trick with standardization and empowerment is, on the one hand, you want to standardize in a way that doesn't crush dignity. And you want to empower in a way that doesn't crush control, mm. right? Because you want to you want to standardize, but you want people to have dignity. And if you combine standardization with empowerment, and you actually involve your employees in this standardization effort, then you don't crush dignity. But it's very important to 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 to, to, to think about different control mechanisms that companies can use to empower their employees so that they make good decisions. Um, and, and, and the companies that I studied use a bunch of different control mechanisms from recruiting the right person to the company, um, sometimes through different mechanisms or through referrals, they, they've all found referrals to be very helpful. Um, another control approach is monitoring or performance management, another one is through culture. So they do lots of things to ensure that the empowered employees actually make good decisions for the customers and for, for, the, um, for, for the companies. And the standardize and empower, again, if you look at this, 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 this thing about operations, the standardize and empower leads to higher productivity because now employees can work faster. They can work without making, making errors. It leads to less waste because now employees can come up with process improvement or product improvement ideas, and they can they they, they, they can implement um, their voices heard and, and, and suggestions are taken from them. They can engage in lowering costs. They can offer better service to their customers. If 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 you are empowered to make decisions for your local customers, you can deliver a much better much better service and standardize and empower also drive make the job a better job and, and, and lead to higher engagement in the employees. So again, an operational choice through operations is when you can see lots of performance improvements in sustainability, in, 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 in other spheres, and you can also see the effect on higher employee engagement. So so that was my second choice. The, the third one is uh, cross-train. So, so I, I, I mentioned to you about retailers providing their employees work schedules just one or two weeks in advance and changing those all the time. The reason they do that is because um, customers, so what I have here is, is day of the week in, in, in hours that a retail store is open and customer traffic. The reason schedules are so erratic is because customer traffic is erratic. Even within a day, there are times, let's say you take, a, you take a Monday, there are times when there are few customers, there are times when there are many customers. So what most companies do is to try to match the number of people as closely as possible to customer traffic. Um, and, 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 and this is what we call chase strategy in operations, and it's, it's labeled as JIT scheduling, which drives me crazy, but, I, but for that you have to hear 
me talk about Toyota production system for another 20 minutes. So um, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to leave that. But, but, but the intention is to increase productivity. But of course, I, I won't go through that. But of course, what happens when you operate this way is that your employee morale is so low. If you can't have a predictable schedule, if you can't manage your life outside your work, because you never know when you're going to work, then your morale is so much lower. How can you find daycare, you know, care for your children or for others? How can you find a second job if you're not making enough money, if your schedule changes all the time? So that lowers morale, of course, that increases employee turnover, and then here we are back in the vicious cycle of retailing um, again. So what modern retailers do is they don't change employee hours quite like this. What they do is they invest in the training of their employees so that they cross-train them to do multiple tasks. Their employees are cross-trained to do both customer-facing tasks and non-customer-facing tasks, like logistics, shopping merchandise, uh, ordering merchandise. That way, when the customers are there, they can attend customers, and when customers are not there, they can do a whole bunch of other things. And, and again, cross-training, this, this should be cross-training, I apologize. <laughs> so cross-training leads to higher productivity. Why does it lead to higher productivity? Because even when there are no customers in your store or in your environment, your employees are busy doing other things. It leads to less waste because employees are, can, can, again, if they have a better understanding of the overall system, rather than just a small part of the system, then they can identify better improvement opportunities. Mm -hmm. um, and, and of course, that goes hand in hand with, with, with lowering costs. They can offer much better service to, to their customers. And again, cross-training makes the job a better job and leads to more engaged employees because we know from you know, years of research and task design that you know, one of the things that, 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 that leads to a higher motivation is through uh, increasing the, no, the, the number of tasks that, that people do in, in the job. So, so again, an operational choice that delivers value to um, multiple, um, multiple stakeholders. So, so the last, how are we doing on time? We're doing great. We're doing great. Mm -hmm. How many more minutes? Uh, you have a total of 25. We're gonna, we want to do, we wanna do some. I, really? We're going to go. We have the, the next steps piece of yeah, this. OK. Yeah, so OK, cool. Because you probably got, I would say, maybe 10, 15 minutes. 10, 15. Okay. Okay, so I'm okay. I'm getting close. So, so the, the, I, I just want to see how much I'm just because I, this is my favorite um, <laughs> favorite of the four choices, which is operate with like we talked about all the improvement opportunities, the things that could come from from people, whether they're frontline employees or, or or not. People need to have time to be able to come up with improvement opportunities and to be able to implement those opportunities. Because what I have observed in in, in lots of different settings is the approach is because people are a cost, people are a cost to be minimized, we should try to have as few people as possible to get as much work as possible. And the companies, the good job strategy companies that I observe don't look at it that way because they realize that they can never for sure tell how much work is going to happen on any given day or any given uh, um, any given week. So let me give you an example. You know, let's let's let us let us say that uh, since you're all, you all like metrics, you all like like numbers. Let's say that you look at your environment and you say that on Mondays, on average, we require in in and I'm going to give the retail as an example, and you can try to apply it to your settings. 
Um, in my store, I have 500 hours of work, right? I'm, I'm forecasting this many customers will come in, come in, this many deliveries, and if I look at how much it takes to perform each of the tasks, I have 500 hours of work. But I never know that for sure, right? Because there, there are, you know, you never know how many customers will come in, you never know what the deliveries are going to be like. So there's some uncertainty around the workload. Um, so, so there's some, let, let, let's assume that it's distributed normally, workload is distributed normally. If you staff your store with 500 people, 500 hours of work, what happens? 50% of the time, you're gonna be okay. 50% of the time, workload will be higher than 500 hours. That's what's gonna happen. You cut corners, you don't serve customers, um, and, 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 and you make lots of mistakes in, in, in your operations. So the company, and, 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 and if you treat employees as just a cost to be minimized, then chances are you're almost always going to operate here. Because you are going to look at, you know, what happens if I get this wrong? What happens if I have too many people or too few people? The cost of having too many people is what you pay your employees. The cost of having too few people is the operational problems, customer service, or lost improvement opportunities. Then you trade these two off. One is a short-term cost, easy to quantify, easy to see impact on financial performance. The other is a long-term, hard to quantify, the short-term always wins. And the result of that is underinvestment in, in employee hours, so understaffed stores. So the companies that, 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 that uh, follow the good job strategy, on the other hand, they operate with Slack, quick trip, in every market they operate, they have 15 to 30% more employees than they need. And these employees are called relief employees. And the relief employees, every morning they call the headquarters and they say, to which store am I assigned today? The reason QuickTrip has this many relief employees is because on any given day, hundreds of their employees are either sick or their children are sick or their parents are sick, they have emergencies, they take vacations. So then they can't show up for work, so they need contingent employees to, to, to substitute for them. And I asked the QuickTrip CEO, I said, how can you afford, though, to have 15 to 30% extra employees? And he said, how can I afford not to? Um, and, and, and they realized that, that you know, there are lots of, lots of benefits of operating with Slack. One of the better benefits is better hiring. Mm -hmm. You can hire much better if you know you have some Slack in your, in, 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 in your in your um, human resources. If you, other benefits are, if you operate with Slack, you know that people will not cut corners. They will do their jobs without making errors. It will increase employee productivity. It will reduce waste. It will reduce cost. You know that when people, when you operate with Slack, now they have time for continuous improvement. They have time for identify, identifying problems and communicating those problems uh, so that somebody could act on these problems or, or, or do problem solving themselves. When you operate with Slack, it increases employee engagement, it makes the job a better job. Because now, your employees, if they want to take time off for whatever reason, right, family, you know, it, it, they don't feel bad about leaving their team members behind because they know that they're going to be covered when they leave. Um, operating with Slack enables them to do continuous improvement. It enables them to deliver better service, and that makes the job a much better job. So, 
so, so, so I hope you realize that all of these four decisions, you know, what, 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 what's great about them is that they deliver value to employees, to customers, to investors, to companies and to investors um, at the same time. And, and what I want to um, emphasize be before we, we stop is that these choices work really nicely together. So operate with Slack works really nicely when you cross-train your people mm -hmm. and when you invest in your people. Because if you, know, if you operate with Slack, you have a little bit extra employees, they can find other things to do because they're cross-trained. Right? If it turns out that you have too many employees, you can ask if anybody wants to go home and people will take the time to go home. You know, they, they, they will take the opportunity because you pay them enough. They're not, you know, they're not worried about those extra two hours that they will work to, 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 to figure out if they're going to be able to put food on the table that night. So all of these uh, choices work, work pretty um, nicely together. And all of these choices work really nicely when, when companies invest in, in their people. Now, I want to leave with um, something which is perhaps not operations, but it's related to values. Because one of the things that I observed, um, and <laughs> so I'm going through these in like each of these within three minutes. Each of these is a chapter in, 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 in my book. So uh, there's a lot more detail about it each one of them obviously, but, but I end the book with, with a chapter on values. Um, and that's, that's, that's quite important. So when I looked at these companies, I saw that they all had similar set of values um, and they were around three things. One is we take care of customers, and I'm sorry I don't have sustainability here, like this is not, um, uh, but, but they, they, all of these lead to more sustainable companies. Um, they take care of customers, they take care of employees and they choose excellence over mediocrity in everything they do. And of course, you look at this and you can yawn and say, like, which company would say they don't take care of their customers or which company would say they don't take their employees. But when you talk to, when you talk to frontline people, you realize that what the company says their values are is not often what's felt by the employees. Um, they, you know, they can say we take care of uh, customers, but, but then do lots of things that are inconsistent with that. Mm -hmm. And what I have found among, especially three out of the four companies, Costco, um, Mercadona, and Quick Trip is, the way that they show this val these values to their employees in a way that engages them is to show it when there's a performance pressure. Mm. What do you do when there's a performance pressure? If you miss your quarterly earnings, your Costco, and you miss your quarterly earnings targets, and your investors are saying, this is the time to reduce your um, benefits in, in your employees, what do you do then? Do you listen to the short-term investors, or do you actually stick to your, to your values? And what I found among these companies is that they stick to these values, not like 60% of the time, 95% of the time. They stick to them 100% of the time. And in fact, their values create constraints for them. And I, I call this values-based constraints in, in, in the book. Um, the, the, the values create constraints with them, and the values determine what they can and what they cannot do um, under performance pressures. And what happens when you have constraints driven by your values is, when you're under performance pressure, there's a whole bunch of things that you cannot do. You can't do things that hurt customers. You can't do things that hurt your employees. Now what you have to do is you have to innovate under those constraints. 
And if you look at these companies and how they've been able to innovate under cons these constraints, it's unbelievable. Um, there's a great case study about Mercadona and how after the economic crisis, with these constraints, Mercadona was able to innovate so much better than its competitors to lower their prices and capture a lot more market share from, from their um, from their customers. So, okay, so so all of that, uh, I, I'm, I'm gonna stop with this one particular slide because we talked about uh, employees and how they feel about their jobs and whether it's possible to create meaning, uh, well-being for them. This is one of my favorite employees, her name is Patty Donovan, and she works for Quick Trip. Uh, part of Patty's job is to clean toilets, uh, clean gas pumps, check out people at the cash register, but when you talk to her, she sees her job, and this is not just her, the quick trip employees I interviewed in general. When you talk to them, they see their job as something a lot more important than that. There's a higher purpose in what they do. And for quick trip, that's to make people happy. And Patty said to me, you're working with 12 or 14 people, they go out and they touch 12 or 14 people, so I get to make a really big impact in so many people's lives just by trying to get them to see what Quick Trip's ending goal is, and that's for everybody to be successful and everybody to be happy. I think if we can create these types of jobs in a setting like convenience store chains, we can create them everywhere. So, thank you. And I'll, I'll just add a couple words, which is just that Within Sloan, we have a work and employment research group that has been looking at work practices in a variety of different sectors over the years. And, and the interesting thing is that this adds to a body of work that understands that good jobs exist in every sector. Like this good jobs distinction exists in every sector. Um, so going back to sort of the manufacturing studies, looking at you know GM versus Toyota, looking at airlines, looking at Southwest versus you know United or American. Looking at um, healthcare delivery, Kaiser Permanente versus you know a lot of other healthcare delivery providers, and there's a whole raft of these sort of comparative case studies within our within Sloan, of which this is part, that says exactly this: that there is a high road in which you can compete on this good job strategy. And I think what's interesting is what you've identified, especially doing this now in the more contemporary sustainability informed context, is how. The waste, the physical waste reduction, is also a byproduct of this strategy, mm -hmm. um, and 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 maybe you know part of it. And so when we need, when we think about a, a sustainable organization, there may be some. When we talk about triple bottom line, as if there are three things you have to pursue independently, um, these are these are sort of there's a set of practices that go together. But you can't, you couldn't implement this just from a sustainability department, right? You, could, you this is this is like the, the operational core of the firm. Um, and so that takes, so we think about what it takes to move companies down this trajectory, that's not, it's not something that can come out of the sustainability department. Okay. One question that I, I have thinking about at least two of the brands that I wonder, because I agree completely that it can't come out of the sustainability department, but both of those brands have had pretty big sustainability scandals. Um, so Costco had a huge change on our position when they pulled recycled toilet paper tissue and had to reinstate it. Um, and with Trader Joe's, they're dealing with plastic waste due to a supplier that was, you know, polluting the Mediterranean. One question that, that we wrestle with in terms of is, is um, there's a good job strategy, but there's also 
how you make sure that in the context of a good job, every employee has the awareness to be able to look for opportunity and risk around that. So how, from an operations standpoint, where does that fall in your mind as part of a company that's thinking about a good job strategy? Is that in Empower? Is that in Operate with Slack? And you'll notice those things. Um, how, how, where does that fit? But conversely, right. Walmart, which is very well known in environmental sustainability circles, does very little. Or less. McDonald's, yeah, or as McDonald's. well, as we were exactly. talking about. I mean, it, it, it's hard to pinpoint to a specific practice and say that this. I, I, I'm not sure if I understand the question perfectly because, well, I, I, if you would, what you would hope is that a company that has a good st job strategy um, is also extremely, therefore, mindful about the impact that they are having on their customers, the world that they operate, et cetera. And yet, both have had recently several high-profile blunders, for lack of a better yeah. word. One where they just clearly didn't understand their customers' demands and needs and interests, or at least a very <coughs> large minority that was interested. In the other case, what their suppliers were doing as it related to waste and things like that. And what you would hope is if you had empowered employees, they would have realized you know, that, wait, pulling recycled toilet paper tissue is going to create a huge scandal and had a voice and been able to influence that. Yeah, so. I mean, the, the frontline employees can only do so much for especially their supplier relations, but yeah. to, to understand the voice, the concerns of the customers certainly would should have come from right. their frontline employees. But I think if I, if I look at Costco, for example, I would be very surprised if Costco didn't take a very high road in how they solved that problem. Because Costco treats its suppliers like it treats its, its employees. I mean, um, the, 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 um, the, the founder of Costco came to my class last semester, and he gave the example of, this is not quite environmental sustainability, but he said they had this, um, this, this manufacturer that were supplying tires for them, and they weren't competitive, so they said, we're gonna stop relationship, and then they realized that, well, if we stop the relationship, they're gonna have to close their factory. And he said, we gave them two more years and they became a lot more competitive. They work with them to become more competitive. So when they work with their suppliers, they ask their suppliers about the jobs that they provide. Yeah. So not every, they're not, nobody's perfect, right. but I would, I, I would say that if Costco, once Costco is aware of problems, I, I, I believe in them to be able to solve them because they have mechanisms to solve it, but um, yeah, I mean, all, all of these, you, you'll hear about some problem from all of these companies. I'm not here to say that they are perfect, but these are some of the practices that they use that at least make them so yeah. much better than their competitors. Well, I guess the question is, can a good job strategy yes. exist independently from a broader sustainability strategy? I think, I think the logic you're looking for is that when you get a good job strategy, people feel a sense of dignity and uh, a greater sense of empowerment and happiness, like that last employee you talked about, they are more likely to be authentic creative and collaborative, which is good for business, but they're also more likely to be able to um, come from this place of care that we talked about. Mm -hmm. In other words, that you, know, that you need to create that minimum amount of space in their lives for them to feel connected to them. I mean, she's clearly a happy employee, your favorite employee there at the end, right? And I think companies, even like Walmart, you know, they, they, uh, they maybe don't pursue your model, but on the sustainability front, they really try to drive sustainability down mm -hmm. to the front line. They do. So they're counting on frontline employees to come up with sustainability solutions in the stores, in the fleet of trucks, 
you know, that's how they, they've gotten 45% improvements in store efficiency and truck efficiency improvements and in the supply chains. And, um, but at the same time, they provide horrible jobs correct. to 1.4 million people. Exactly. So imagine if they use yeah. your model with their employees. It's, you know, I think that... It strikes me that maybe... I think a, there a, are companies that are pursuing like sustain, yeah. environmental sustainability without the good yes, job so strategy right. and, and, and vice versa. But Walmart, again, offers a lot more products than Costco or you know, other companies. So there are lots of other things your, that they do. Your model lends itself yeah. to sustainability and much more. You, you're, the way you present this... The, the bridge to sustainability is rather weak, right? So yeah. Yes, and I'm never, I'm not a sustainable. The potential is huge. The potential yeah. is huge. And the thing is, the, no, the thing is, change is so much easier. There's another chapter that talks about how these companies can change a lot faster than mm -hmm. others because yeah. they have this excellence in operations mm -hmm. and they have engaged people. So now if you say, I'm going to pursue sustainable, you know, I'm going to pursue this initiative. These companies are in a much better but I think there's an issue though. I think I think if I was going to add, if I could add like one thing to this model that would make it more likely that you'd have a, a robust sustainability strategy, it would be something about context awareness. Mm -hmm. Like the issue with one of the issues with Costco is that you know they're a very insular company. Like the fact that you were even able to do research in that company is kind of a miracle, right? Because in 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 general. It's not a company that NGOs get to hang out with. It's not a company that consultants get to hang out with. It's not a company that researchers get to hang out with very much. Um, and so it's not a company that is, it, which is, which is, which, and, and those were the things that Walmart made the, its early moves in, in terms of getting EDF into the room, getting Blue Sky into the room, getting, you know, a lot of other players into, into getting into, you know, coalitions of various kinds to be able to sense some of those emerging issues. So there's a strategy piece of this that, then might inform you about what those initiatives are to take. Now, their ability to roll things out to their employees in a, in a sustainable and life-giving way may not be the same, right? So it's, it's, it's I mean, I think, I think if, we, if we situate this within Stephanie's model, like, th this, is a, this is a huge chunk of it that's super important, and there may be other pieces about context awareness that have to do with strategy and not, aren't, aren't as much about operations. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yes. So I have a... I guess a favorite metaphor for, for this it seems to me like a useful reflection on the whole, which is that it's related to baseball. And some of you are baseball fans will appreciate this. For some, I'm sorry, I, I've been trying to years to for a better metaphor. <laughs> but, but basically, if you're getting 70% wrong in business, you're going to be an all-star. Right? If you're hitting 300, you're missing 70% of the time. But there are lots of different ways to do that. You can be terrible at the, the at the way that you swing, but you can be really fast. Like there's a Ichiro Suzuki is really good at that. But you can have a beautiful swing and be kind of slow, like Don Madden. So you get but so you get these different approaches. And the point is not specifically to talk about baseball, even though it's the last game of Derek Jeter's career on Sunday. Who is he? That's my okay. But but rather to think, I, I wonder if there are different pathways to hitting to, to hitting for a pretty good average in this session. So on the one hand, we've got motivation. Even just getting people more engaged and motivated is worth something. Even if you don't give them better information about what exactly to do, 
even if they're not a lot better at what exactly to do, they're doing what they're already doing, but they're more engaged in it, they're thinking about it more. Also, maybe there's a, within the practices that Stephanie was talking about, there's more, there's more information about sequence, and, and there's some, especially with the guide, there's more specific about practices. But then, you know, maybe there's even, so maybe you can have that, and motivated employees, and those are separate things. You can have higher motivation even if you don't really follow the right plan for sustainability and you'll get a better performing business. Or you can have medium motivation and execute the techniques better, you teach people the techniques better, and you get better results. And maybe there's something else too, the context of the role or there's some other pathway. But, but to me, I think you can partially substitute the pathways. I think what, what I'm hearing from, from Jason's comment and from the session overall, not any individual, is that if you put them together, now you can do even more. Yeah. If you have, if you have mm -hmm. Slack, yeah. Yeah. now people can learn more about the right techniques. And if you provide some sort of context, now you can go beyond the right techniques of today to the right to innovating something new. So I, I think they are substitutable at a certain level, but they're better they together. Complement yeah. They're complementary. Yeah. 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 It's a portfolio of activities. Yeah. Yeah. about you know all your your examples were so powerful and most of them that struck me were frontline employees mm -hmm. and at a corporate level it seems to me those are the people making decisions about procurement and about you know supplier decision making which um, there might be higher levels of stress there there might not be as much slack there might be more pressure what do you have, did you also look at higher levels of management within these particular companies to see how well they're treated I looked at mostly frontline employees, but but how the company treats its employees is pretty uh, consistent yeah. across different different levels, and 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 they practice several of these uh, at the higher levels as well. Yes, and it's I mean we he, yeah, yes. I have two comments. One to Jason. Yes. Uh, I actually think that you're minimizing the role of sustainability professionals if you say that this is cannot come from the sustainability department because I think that's exactly what we need to do. We need to push offer less from the sustainability department but through a compelling business case mm -hmm. and move away from um, traditional sustainability projects or band-aids or whatever mm -hmm. to attack the business model in itself. So that's just the comment. Then I was wondering, and you may comment on this later. Um, <laughs> I was wondering, you mentioned like the benefits, like salary, schedules, etc., etc., empowerment, leading to motivation. I'm wondering if a sustainable company in itself offering less actually drives down to motivation. If sustainability is a driver of motivation, if you've seen that anywhere. I think it's hard to parcel that out, but that, that simplifies people's jobs and enables them to do good jobs. That increases their motivation and reduces the yeah, likelihood of turnover. So these are, yeah, it's, it's, hard to, it's yeah. hard to say this alone drives it, but it is, it, it, it is um, a, a piece of, of, of the ingredients. Towers, um, Towers Watson did uh, drivers of employee engagement and employee motivation, 
and I would say the first two things that were mentioned would be covered by yeah. what's covered here, the good job strategy, but number three was the company's reputation and actions related to sustainability and responsibility. So uh, Towers Watson, which is a large HR consulting research firm. So um, I can send you, if you're interested, the link afterwards to that okay. study. And, and to just respond to this thing about sustainability departments, I mean, when Stephanie was laying out the maturity model around roles, right, what she was saying was that there's a stage where you don't have anybody thinking about sustainability, and then there's a stage where you've got a fairly concentrated corporate function around sustainability that's dealing with some reporting, some strategies, some things like that. And then there's a stage where sustainability is starting to get embedded more, more thoroughly in the organization. You've got people in supply chain management or in store operations who are sort of tagged with sustainability in some capacity, using that central function as a resource. Mm -hmm. And what I'm saying is that you're not, you're, you're, this, is, this as part of a sustainability strategy is, is much more likely to happen in that third stage than it is in the first yeah. stage. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Before we end, I have one request that, that I make to the audience, which is, so my next project is to create a, a good job score. And as, as you know, the good jobs, the way I define them is not just about uh, wages and benefits, but it has the components of the work designed this way. And a good job is not just good for the employee that holds it, but also for the customer and for the shareholders. So as I, if you have any suggestions about developing a good job score, um, I, I would welcome them. Mm. The objective is to give investors a tool that they can use to assess companies on how well they're following the good job strategy. <laughs>